0: Pavlik lost sight of that puck for a split second and almost gave Kunitz a great chance on a wraparound. Slater's open in front of the net.
1: grimis comes down! Glass!
2: <laughs> hey! welcome to episode number 47 of the Sportscasters. It is October 18th, 2011. My name is Steve Bennett. I am here with my co-host, Don Ross. How are you doing today, Don? Super. We are one day away from a very special day, October 19th, which not only is Mama Caster, Willis Day's birthday but also is game one of the World Series. And off the top, I have a question for you, Don. Okay. I'm the kind of guy who, no matter what, is going to watch the World Series. I've watched every World Series since the 1986 Boston Red Sox New York Mets World Series. That's the first one I can remember watching as a kid, and I've seen them all since. You are a much more casual fan of baseball and i guess my question to you is does this do it for you
3: um i mean it's not gonna make it appointment television for me or anything but i mean i'll still probably flip it on now and then in between shows or whatever i mean albert pujols is a draw he's always fun to watch hit uh other than that though i'd have a hard time naming players
2: is there a point where this could be appointment television. Like if 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 it goes seven games, you're watching that. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So baseball had, I think the second lowest rated world series last year. And there's been some talk that this could be the lowest rated world series. And I guess just from talking to Don here, it seems like the best case scenario for baseball is going to be a long series. And if this, goes far they'll be okay if this is a five gamer or a four gamer it's going to come and go maybe without a whimper
3: yeah i don't i don't think a four game sweep or
2: anything helps anybody yeah so the world series is day a day away we are in the middle of college football and the nfl seasons hockey is two weeks in basketball is still a wall a wall not participating and uh, we have a great show for you today. We have Pablo Estori, who is a writer for Sports Illustrated and sportsillustrated.com. is going to join us to talk about a little article he wrote about a walk-on at Oklahoma who has figuring quite prominently in their uh, national championship run here, Dominique Whaley. We're going to talk to him a little bit about that article and more. We're also going to talk with Matt Wright, a new hockey guy. Uh, he's from View My Seats, ViewFromMySeats.com. We're going to talk about him, talk about the NHL with him. And at the end, we're going to do a real cool interview with uh, a kid I met on Twitter named Jesse who has a really cool website that we've mentioned a couple times on the show called TheFanManifesto.com. We'll check in with him. But I also wanted to kind of remind everyone that last week we were really lucky enough to have Nick Bakai on the show. Yeah. And I've heard nothing but positive reaction to the Nick Bakai interview all week. That's episode 46 of the show, which you can find on our website, www.sports-casters.com. And I want to thank Nick Bakai again for joining us. And of course, our other guests, Greg Easterbrook and Matt Crossman from that episode. But we're going to get started with episode 47 here. Again, Pablo Astori, Matt Wrights, and Jesse uh, Golump. I don't... I don't know if I'm saying this name right. We'll find out later. But I think it's Golem. And uh, let's get things started right now with three things. Let's play a game. All right. Mm-hmm. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback.
1: <laughs> this is the funnest night ever. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's
3: move on to other business. All right, clearly the biggest news as far as sports goes is the Carson Palmer trade. Carson Palmer, who had been sitting out, uh, the Bengals had been just kind of sitting on him, mm. and he goes to the Raiders for a first pick in the next draft and a conditional, uh, it'll be a second-round pick, or if they win a game, that he a playoff game that Palmer plays, then it'll be a first-rounder in 2013. Uh. I don't know what I mean, I do know what to think of this trade. The Raiders got ripped off. Yeah, they did. And they look like a team that's looking to strike while the iron's hot. The AFC is uh is bunched big, up. Yeah, it's all bunched up. Yeah. There's a bunch of 4 and Bide 2 teams, open. a few 3 and 3 teams like the Jets. Yep. So, it's anybody's for the taking. It looks like New England maybe will run away with it, but outside of them there's going to be five teams fighting for or there's going to be probably eight teams fighting for five spots or so. Uh as far as Palmer goes, I I think he's an an okay quarterback. I heard uh, Aaron Schatz, we mentioned him a lot. Uh, He was talking about how it's it's a patch. Uh, He's been an above-average quarterback his whole career. He's a guy that I think
2: has lived on his draft status longer than most people do. Well, you know what's funny about him is he's kind of lived – he was a huge recruit, a huge recruit, a five-star recruit Mm -hmm. that went to USC and was a bust until his senior season where kind of everything came together, and he had a huge game Saturday night, 8 o'clock, against Notre Dame. He ended up winning the Heisman Trophy that year and being a first overall pick to the Bengals. In the NFL, he's had two catastrophic injuries. One, everyone remembers. The Bengals finally put it all together, win the division, go to the playoffs, host the Steelers in the first round, and on the first play, a long, long touchdown pass to the late wide Chris, receiver uh, Chris, Henry. Chris Henry, he tore his ACL. The Bengals ended up losing. He ended up coming back maybe not the same. Then in 2008, he had a shoulder injury. And since then, he's never exactly been the same. So here's a guy who, as you said, maybe lives off his reputation a bit. Yet, when you look at stats, you see that he still nearly threw for 4,000 yards last year. Yeah, yeah, he always puts up so numbers. So the talent is there, right? The question is, what does he have left? And he's also a guy who, more than anyone, had no off season, and then had no six weeks where he's just been sitting around. Right? I guess he's been working with, I want to say Kenny Anderson. Is that right? He's been working with some former NFL quarterback. That's kind of like Kenny Anderson. It might be someone <laughs> different. He either a. For Oh, it might be Ken O'Brien. I don't know. Ken O'Brien, okay. He's been working with some former NFL quarterback trying to kind of stay in it and healthy. And apparently he passed the fiscal with no problem. Uh, but I guess I have a question for you, Don. Do I have to eat crow on all I've said about the Bengals? Or do I need to just mock the Raiders? Oh, man. <laughs> because I've been very critical about the way the Bengals have handled this. Probably a tiny bit of the first,
3: but mostly the second. I mean, they got bailed out. He did get time. what he wanted, obviously, but but it, but it took a miracle, right? There's nobody could have expected this. It took I mean, an
2: injury to, to Jason Campbell, right? It took a team who had the He's huge four and two, huge optimism, see their season potentially get ripped away, and have Kyle Buller on the bench. Yeah. So I mean, he made. But he got a King's ransom for the He Carson made Palmer. the right
3: call, but it's kind of a hindsight type thing. Like a lot of footballers, football pl- uh pundits will hate certain calls, but it's it's usually because they don't work. This is the opposite. You you end up liking his move because
2: it did work. But you no, know Mike, nobody could have expected it. Mike Brown would have never got this in the off season. No way. He got what he got because of circumstance. And my guess is it probably went something like this Raiders guy calls Mike Brown and says, We'd like to trade for Carson palmer i'm sorry he's not available goodbye <laughs> they call back no really we want to trade for him we'll give you a fifth round pick sorry he's not available and probably by like the 15th phone call the guy's like look it we'll give you a first round at a conditional come on already you know and then finally mike said, all right yeah
3: i mean it's a no-brainer for him i just checked the schedule uh one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. There are ten teams right now that are three and three or better. So Kyle, Kyle Bowler probably wasn't going to separate them
2: from the top five there. So I wonder where the Al Davis death fits in. Like the the like whole the, do orga- it for Al type season. The whole organization is kind of mourning the death of Al, right? Sure. So. Is it more important then because of the death to Al to make noise this year and not just have Kyle Buller come in and ruin the whole thing and end up 4-12? Like, if Al Davis was still alive, would he have done this trade? Maybe. I'm curious. I'm just curious where that fits in. Like, why did the Raiders feel like this year was so important that they had to basically give away the next two drafts? Maybe that has something to do with it, and uh, I don't know. But uh, and what happens in the spring? I guess it's going to depend on how these guys play. This year's. Yeah, I was going to say. At what point would this be worthwhile?
3: One playoff win? Do they have to win the Super Bowl for this to be worthwhile?
2: Well, that's if they win the Super Bowl, it was worthwhile, right? For sure. Any trade that results in a Super Bowl is worthwhile, Uh, but. Is if it the type it, of trade that maybe you have to wait ten years to see how the draft picks pan out? Maybe. But that's almost not fair. Right. Because it's a trade for now. That said, the Raiders
3: this coming draft will have no first, second, third, or fourth round pick. Do they sh-
2: are they gonna go? <laughs> <laughs> like if you're the Raiders at that point you might as well just trade like just, your fifth just auto and sixth draft. And seventh round <laughs> yeah. pick and just, all right, we're not gonna show up at this draft. They have to swap him for next year. But you know what? They're also going to be in a position in the spring where they're going to have two, quarterback, two NFL starting quarterbacks. They're not going to need both. Right. So they could possibly flip Palmer for something else. They could trade Campbell for something else. Right, I mean, in the spring they're not going to want to have both these guys on the team anymore, right? No, so maybe they could get back a third round pick for one of the Palmer. Two.
3: By the way, will be thirty two in December, so I mean he's not ancient for a quarterback, but he's not young. Or anything I also
2: either. heard he was the same age as when Drew Bledsoe came to the Bills. Interesting. I mean, so if you recall, and that was Bledsoe hit first round pick.
3: I would consider that a successful run to some degree with the Bills, even though they didn't make the playoffs at all. But uh, he. A lot of it had to do with bad drafting. They drafted running backs after having, and him they and, would
2: have made the playoffs if they would have figured out that day how to stop Willie Parker and, <laughs> and beat Pittsburgh. The Steelers, yeah, you know,
3: beat a bunch of Pittsburgh backups. Yeah, so, so yeah, may, I mean, maybe it's one of those trades that work out for both sides. But on the surface, it looks like
2: uh, Raiders the
3: Raiders, Raiders got fleeced. Yeah. All
2: right, I have a really cool first story, and it's about the Winnipeg Jets. We have long mentioned on this show many times that we're big Pearl Jam fans. And Pearl Jam, one of their kind of missions as a band, has always been to do whatever they could to kind of curb scalping. Right. They're against scalping and for a good reason. And the owners of True North Sports and Entertainment have been on a crusade against scalpers ever since they acquired the Jets in May. I mean, obviously, when the Winnipeg Jets returned, hockey returned to Winnipeg, demand was huge. Season tickets sold out despite the fact that you needed to make a five-year commitment. And, I mean, they sold out instantly with huge waiting lists. And many people decided that they would buy those season tickets solely for the uh, purpose of reselling them in the StubHub eBay post-ticket market. Well, that's illegal in Manitoba. Right, Scalping is uh, legal here in New York, not legal in Manitoba. And... Uh, it's punishable uh, for a fine of up to $5,000. Police actually arrested two men for scalping tickets last week, days before the Jets season. And the Winnipeg Jets organization has canceled any account that they could find out sold their tickets for over face value. Good for them. And are reselling those tickets to people on the waiting list. And the Globe and Mail, which is a natural national newspaper in Canada, uh, and also it's like the USA Today is to the U.S. The Globe and Mail is to Canada. And they have a great article about this, which some of my information has come from. But basically, uh, congratulations to the Winnipeg Jets and their owners, True North Sports and Entertainment, not being willing to put up with scalping. It's illegal in the province of Manitoba. They're not going to stand for it. They're not going to let their fans be put in a position to have to decide between the next six months' dinner or a chance to go to see these games. Scalpers are some of the scummiest people. They are. They're disgusting. And the Jets have set up a website on their site where if you need to sell tickets, you can do so for face value and a slight processing fee. And uh, so if you want to go to a Winnipeg Jets game, you're going to have to do it legitimately through... uh, legitimate ways yeah so good for the jets congratulations i love it
3: on a slightly more sour news the dan well than death if you haven't heard it was an indie race in las vegas uh he was a super nice guy he leaves a wife and a couple kids he was like a 15 car crash and like i said i know everyone's heard about this essentially a nationally televised death right um and as it turns out, a lot of people saw this kind of coming. And there's a bunch of quotes here. I'm on New Times website, newsfeed.time.com. Anyway, there's a lot of racers saying things before the race, like you can run anywhere, you can run against the wall. You're going to see three and cars going. You're going to see three and a half wide racing here. It's going to be a wild race. There's a potential for a big wreck, so I hope you stay out of that. These quotes are before. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them were from before the races. Uh, we had a bad feeling about this place because of how the high banking and how easy it was to go flat. That's obviously after the race. Um, more than any other track, this track is like an engine dyno, which I'm not sure what that means. I'm not a car race fan, but he said, I'll have to have a mistake free. The action will be everywhere. Basically from what I understand is this track grips really nicely. So in a lot of races, drivers find a line, like a good line to race on a fast line. This track is fast everywhere and as it showed cars were all on top of each other uh when he says three and a half wide i think he means literally like you're gonna have three and a half cars racing side by side by side because the track is so uh banked there it the nascar driver jimmy johnson said afterward that indie cars shouldn't be racing on the oval tracks because of the high banks and their uh, propensity to go airborne so Hopefully, I mean, hopefully something will change about this because, like you said, a nationally televised death is not something anybody wants to see. And, and Fiery.
2: Dan, Dan Weldon is a champion in this sport. Yeah, this isn't a, not that it should matter, but this is a champion. And NASCAR uh, in the year two thousand and one, I believe, was faced with the death of an all-time champion. Right. Uh, when Dale Earnhardt died, and it's interesting because earlier this week, Jimmy Johnson also had a wreck. Who you mentioned, who's a champion in NASCAR, and it was eerily similar to the crash that Earnhardt had. Since Earnhardt died, there's been many changes to so that. Safety changes. Yeah, it's H A N S had a neck restraint system, uh the Hans system that has helped with whiplash type, right. which is essentially what killed Earnhardt. They've changed uh, – they've had inserted soft walls where they basically put giant pieces of foam in front of the walls. They've done a lot of things to make drivers safe. And when you see a crash that looks exactly like Earnhardt looked and you see Jimmy Johnson, the champion, getting out of the car and walking away safe, you can kind of pat NASCAR on the back and say you've done a good job. You've made changes right. to the sport. So I guess the ball is now in the IndyCar sports court. They now have to make changes to make sure their drivers are safe because when drivers are predicting before that trouble could be ahead and then trouble happens and you have a champion dying like that, it's time to make some changes. Right,
3: and like you said, it's a champion, and not that that necessarily matters, but it does show that it was someone that's experienced. This wasn't a new racer that was too wild or reckless or something like that. This was just a bad... It was a bad crash, and the crash actually kind of happened in front of him, and he just didn't have time to react to it, and he kind of went over another car. But uh, not this had nothing to do with an experience or it's just it, it's an unsafe sport in general. But the track made it all
2: that more unsafe. All right, my number two thing: Donovan McNabb meet the bench. <laughs> bench meet Donovan McNabb in a somewhat inevitable. Yeah move. The Minnesota Vikings today announced that uh, they will be benching Donovan McNabb and they will be starting Christian Ponder, their first round pick. And uh, hey Christian, welcome to the NFL. Your first game is against the undefeated Green Bay Packers. Nice. A uh, couple things here. Is this the end of Donovan McNabb? I don't know. I, I, that's actually what I was going to ask you. Is Are you
3: Along the similar lines, are you surprised by how fast he's dropped off? Like he just looks bad, and that's that's not a hideous team from what I've seen. They they're somewhat competitive, and it seems like toward the end of games they usually get blown out.
2: Well, but he's three years older than Carson Palmer
3: is. Right, he's thirty-four years old. But I mean, until Vic came back and had that big season after McNabb went with or got hurt, he was the starting quarterback for a perennial playoff team. It's not like. It when, happened quick here. Yeah, it happened not,
2: quick with him. His decline has been real quick, real abrupt. Uh, maybe Mike Shanahan wasn't as crazy as we thought last year. Uh, he also he looks bad. Yeah, like he, he's, he, he doesn't not pass passing any tests. Test. No. no, he passes no test. And if you're going to draft Christian Ponder, I think you're at a point now. They're the one five. They're one five. The one and five. Yeah. season's over. Uh, you can kind of predict ponder a bit by canning the ball to adrian peterson i think his role in this team is going to go up and up
3: and even if you don't you're one in five you let ponder play the last 10 games if you go one in 15 then you're in the andrew luck sweepstakes if you decide you don't want to don't want to stick with ponder or you
2: can trade that pick right you know there's going to be a lot of people who are going to want to draft luck and if you end up first which they probably won't because there's still three other teams who have zero wins and they already have one uh, but I mean, this is a guy who was picked twelfth overall. He played at o- at Florida State. I mean, and it's just his turn. And I guess as far as Donovan McNabb goes, that's it. Uh, yeah, I don't. I mean, is he a Hall of Famer? No. N- I don't know what his
3: numbers are. Not based on any sort of achievements, I guess. I mean, he did take him to what four
2: straight. He played in four straight NFC championship championships, games, Super one Super Bowl, Super Bowl,
3: and he played pretty well in that Super Bowl. Although too.
2: he was also accused by Terrell Owens of kind of choking. In the Super Bowl? Yeah. He
3: played real nonchalant and slowly when they were behind, which and was strangely, And he
2: was puking in the huddle. Uh yeah, well. I don't know. I No, I don't think he's a Hall of Famer. Let's see. So his first year was in – I'll give you some stats. He played two, 12 games in 1999. He had 948 yards. His first full season was in 2000. He had 3,300 yards, 21 TDs, and 13 interceptions. 3,200 yards the next year, 25 TDs, 12 interceptions. Looks like his biggest statistical year is 2004. He had 3,800 yards passing, 31 TDs, 8 interceptions. That's a Hall of Fame season. Yeah, for sure. 104.7 quarterback rating. That's the year that they had Owens once in the Super Bowl. Uh Probably not a Hall of Famer. Probably not. I'm trying to look up a... In 2008, he had 3,900 yards passing, 23 TDs, but 11 picks, 84 rating. His career quarterback rating is 85.6. He has 234 TD passes, 117 interceptions. And the way it's ended isn't going to help him. Although it ended bad for other Hall of Fame quarterbacks, Joe Namath comes to mind. Uh... So No, I'd be I he's mean, probably a very good, not great player. Certain core I
3: there's probably a few quarterbacks in the Hall of Fame that He's better than that he could be better than, but they are in there based on uh Super Bowls or whatever. Let let's see. Pro football ref or pro football reference with dashes in it. Usually has a comparison. It has thing. comparisons. Okay, so for his career, his comparables are Mark Brunell, Steve McNair. Terry Bradshaw, Jim Kelly, Troy Aikman, Boomer Esiason, Roger Staubach, Drew Bledsoe, Ken Stabler, Bob Greasy. He's real close. Numbers-wise. He's close. Yeah, he's close.
2: He's going to be a guy that there's going to be a long debate about.
3: That said, someone like Terry Bradshaw won the Super Bowls. I mean, McNabb probably
2: had better numbers if I had to guess. But But it's a different time. It's a different time, right. So historically, it's a different league, so numbers can be misleading.
3: I think with him it's going to be tough because he is going to be known as a guy that could never win the big game, I think. He made it to the Super Bowl. He made it to those uh, NFC NFC championships. But he also lost three
2: of them. but Right, he lost three of them.
3: I mean, Jim Kelly, maybe you can put the same knock on him. But those were Super Bowls. But those were Super Bowls, right. So, yeah, I think he's out, but, I mean, it's not by a a long shot. I mean, he's he's not.
2: I'd say he's a very good but not a great player historically. Yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. I think he's in the tier – Below Hall of Fame quarterbacks.
3: That sounds right. Um, my last thing the BCS standings, uh, which to college, every college football fan loves these, have been released with LSU, Alabama, Oklahoma rounding out the top three. And it's interesting because currently 10 of the 11 top teams are still undefeated. It's I know not a year to lose a game. No, you were saying earlier that LSU and Alabama, the one and two right now, are going to play each other at some point in the regular season. Oklahoma, yes. Oklahoma State, are also going to play each other during the season. Yep. So two of those teams are going to be eliminated based on the fact that they play each other. And if the the two teams that win those games hold serve, then
2: we're looking at basically a playoff. Right the, before the this could be a year where the BCS gets, gets it right gets it right because. What might happen is if Alabama and LSU stay 1 and 2 and Oklahoma and Oklahoma State stay 3 and 4, Oklahoma and Oklahoma State play in the last game of the season. There's no Big 12 championship game this year. So, that's going to be the last game for both of those teams. If they go into those if that those that game undefeated, the winner will most likely be in the National Championship game. Right. LSU and Alabama are going to play as undefeated teams for the right to win the SEC West. If they win that game, the winner of that game is going to go on to probably play Florida, the winner of the SEC East most likely, in the SEC Championship game. You'd assume that the winner of the LSU-Alabama game, who have both already beaten Florida, will win the SEC Championship game, thus kind of creating kind of a quasi plus one right? where you would get the winner of those two games to play each other in the National Championship game. Now, the problem with that is you're going to have Boise State Raising their hand, right. you're going to have Wisconsin raising their hand. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. You're gonna that's gonna have silly. Clemson do- raising their hand, right? Stanford maybe. Stanford maybe saying, "Well, we went through the season undefeated. What about us?"
3: Right. That was going to be my question to you. Okay. Right off the bat, we know we can eliminate two of the teams as being undefeated because four of them play each other. Right. So we're down to eight. I don't know. Right off, just looking if any of the other teams play each Boise other. Boise
2: State, Wisconsin, and Clemson are all certainly national championship caliber none of those teams will play each other wisconsin is probably right now the most likely team in college football to go undefeated based on what's remaining on their schedule and okay
3: stanford they're like stanford and
2: oregon are and kansas state are the other kansas state's a big 12 team kansas state's going to probably play oklahoma undefeated Kansas State's probably playing a. Okay, but that's
3: another team that'll be out. So you're down to seven. Like at least one of those teams right. are going to lose that game. Right. Uh, Stanford. We don't. Stanford know. and Oregon should play. Okay, so you're down to you're down to six potential, like the teams you said. You're down to six potential and maybe six likely teams. Yeah, Oregon to go and Stanford
2: play on November twelfth. Okay. But Clemson, Wisconsin, Boise State, and then say Oklahoma so LSU my could all be undefeated. Let's say LSU beats Alabama. Okay. I'm going to say they're undefeated. Let's say Oklahoma beats Oklahoma State. I'm going to say they're undefeated. Nobody's going to beat Boise State. They're right. undefeated. Nobody's going to beat Wisconsin. They're undefeated. I doubt anyone's going to beat Clemson. Clemson's remaining schedule, they play two ranked teams. They play... Uh, remaining in their schedule, they play Georgia Tech, who's number twenty-two, and they play South Carolina, who's number fourteen. But South Carolina lost their best player to an injury for the season and if in their last game. I know that the, the argument against
3: Boise State is they don't really play anybody most of the time. They'll play, but if you're Clemson and you're out there undefeated, you've played one, two, three, four, five ranked
2: teams in an, in a big conference, the ACC.
3: You've, yeah, you've played five ranked teams to go undefeated. It's going to be hard to tell that team, no, you're,
2: you're not in. You're going to have to play for, the, for fifth. Yep. Sorry. It's, it's going to be, even though there's going to be a large segment of people who are going to say, okay, they got it right this year, LSU and Oklahoma or Alabama and Oklahoma State, whatever, are the best teams, there's still going to be teams and fan bases that are going to say, but why don't we get a chance? Boise State's going to say, why don't we get a chance? Wisconsin's going to say, we won the Big Ten. Why don't we get a chance? I think that Wisconsin's seemed- going to say, we won the ACC. Why don't we get a chance?
3: Going back to Boise State, though, I'm surprised a little bit that they're ranked as highly as they are because they don't play anybody. They played Georgia uh, the first game of the season and won. But they're not going to play another ranked team for the rest of the year. I mean, I guess if you're the BCS, you tell them, well, play somebody. Put somebody
2: on your schedule that's – See, but it's so hard for them because – who wants to play Boise State? Right. What's in it for you? If you lose... Like when Oklahoma lost that bowl game to Ohio State, oh, Oklahoma couldn't beat Boise State. Right. Losers. Right? But if they would have beat them, everyone would have said, oh, so what? It was Boise State. So I give a team like Georgia credit for scheduling Boise State. Right, right. You know? But I I guess more and more...
3: I root for it. I'm rooting for all those teams to go undefeated. I think it'll... If you want to see some change happen, have three or four programs at the end of the season complaining about why didn't we even get a shot at this? And it's going to
2: happen. Yep. So th- that's exciting. I think. All right. My last thing today is kind of just a quick fun thing, and Don has a clip. There's going to always be great players in basketball. There's going to be a, always guys who win championships in the NBA, except LeBron. Uh, okay. <laughs> All right, it kind of. So basically, the story is is that Magic Johnson had a speaking engagement at the University of Albany, which is about five hours from where I sit. And uh, in his speech, he threw in some jokes. And that clip is courtesy of SportsGrid.com, a common website that we quote. And he basically took a shot at LeBron. Uh, If you couldn't hear him, he said, "There's always going to be guys who win championships in the NBA, except LeBron." Yeah. He continued, "Don't be mad. Everyone's always asking who's better between Kobe and LeBron. I'm like, are you kidding me? Kobe five championships, LeBron zero. And it's a funny thing, you know. Uh, Magic went on to say, I love the I love the young man, though. I know he's going to get better this year in the fourth quarter.' Uh, so, you know, Magic kind of rode the fence there at the end. But I think it's funny, and we spent a lot of time on the show hating on the Heat." Yeah. And uh, rooting against the Heat, and uh, I thought it'd be cool to include this today.
3: Have you seen the commercial with LeBron in it? I think it's a Subway or McDonald's or oh, something or the, commercial. The odds of him winning, and he's like, "Come Southern on, man!" Yeah. It's like well, that's a strange commercial for him to be in
2: because he's already ripped on for never being able to win one. Well, at least he, sh- I think, what he's trying to do there is light show of it. that he has a little bit of a sense of humor. Yeah. So good for him, I guess. But uh, <laughs> Magic Johnson and his magic aids uh looks great and, yeah it's uh, insane uh, you know it's so funny because when he came out with that he had aids i just remember thinking wow magic johnson's gonna die right and here we are over 20 years later yeah if you
3: you if you bought a puppy that day the puppy is probably not with you anymore right. perfectly healthy puppy but
2: he has aids and unbelievable yeah, it's, it's unbelievable how that disease has changed.
3: Yeah, good for him. Yeah, it's no, it doesn't seem to be a death sentence anymore. It seems like it's gone away. Maybe just uh, knowledge about it to some degree. I'm sure there's people, people in are Africa safer. listening to well, us right now screaming. Ah! No, I know, but they have corrupt government and stuff like
2: that that lies to them about AIDS and whatever. That's for Oprah, not for us. Right. All right. So that's three things for today. I like it. Fun, spirited. Uh, we're gonna proceed with. Pablo S. Tori, we're gonna to have Matt Wright, and we're gonna have Jesse Golump. Uh, hopefully I'm saying that right. We'll find out. Jesse will tell us later. Uh, <laughs> but we're gonna take a break right now and we'll be right back with Pablo S. Tori. Our next guest is from New York City, New York, and is a graduate of Harvard University. At Harvard, he was the executive editor of the only breakfast table daily in Cambridge, the Harvard Crimson. In 2007, he was honored for his work by the Associated College Press and the American Society of Newspaper Editors for writing the sports story of the year. After college, he was hired by Sports Illustrated to be a writer and reporter for the magazine and SI.com. In 2010, he won two Boxing Writers Association of America awards for feature writing. He is a regular contributor to NPR, makes frequent television appearances on stations such as CNN, CBS, Fox News, and can also be heard making radio spots on ESPN Radio, WFAN, Fox Sports Radio, and now the sportscasters. A warm welcome to the ultra-talented Pablo Estori. How are you doing today, Pablo?
4: Great. Thank you for that extremely, extremely generous bio. My mom is going to be thrilled that you guys did that for me. <laughs> well, you know,
2: I don't know if I have to feel guilty about talking to you or not because my younger brother is a freshman at Yale. There you go. <laughs> and one of the kindest, most flexible, reasonable, most distinguished gentlemen that comes on this show. Often your colleague, John Wertheim,
4: is also of course. a Yaley. So yeah, we have, we yeah, have to and, be my, and my roommate in my apartment right now, where I live, and my best friend for decade, over a decade, is, is, is went to Yale too. So I'm surrounded by You're surrounded such by
2: Yalies, huh?
4: Yeah, it's a, it's a tough life.
2: Why is Harvard <laughs> better? Sorry, right, say it again. Why is Harvard better?
4: Oh man, uh, I mean, if you measure better by who's more arrogant, I think Harvard is hands down <laughs> better, which is really the only. Measuring stick, I think, for Ivy League uh, elitism.
2: Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Well, I went to state college. So, Uh, Anyway, uh, (laughs) uh, we're excited to have you on the show today. Um, I kind of got the idea because I read a fantastic article that you wrote in Sports Illustrated last week about Dominic Whaley, who is of specific interest to me, being a, a big Oklahoma fan, a friend of mine growing up. Uh, actually played at Oklahoma, backed up Jason Belzer. If you remember him, he played for yeah. the Indianapolis Colts. He was basically his backup. So I've been a Sooners fan for a long time. And Dominic Whaley is someone that I can't compare to anyone, really, looking back in all the years, especially in the Bob Stoops era. Uh, I can think of plenty of four- and five-star recruits like Adrian Peterson and – you know, Roy Williams and Sam Bradford and players like that. But I can't think of a walk-on who has made quite the impact that Dominic Whaley has. Why don't you just start off by telling us a little bit about where the idea to do the story on Dominic came about and maybe a little bit about what you were most interested to learn about his specific story.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think that's true, first off, in terms of how unique he is, not only at OU, but also probably just in the general college landscape. I don't know if I've seen physically, you know, as impressive a specimen, a guy in terms of athleticism who who has all the credentials that Dominique does, but, but, you know, has sort of slipped through the cracks. But the story started thanks to the editor at SI, uh, the college football editor at SI, Gene Menez, who, as sometimes happens at SI, gave me a call on Monday, uh, the week before the, the issue went to press, and told me that he wanted to do a story on walk-ons. And that there was this kid, Dominic Whaley, who at OU, who was, you know, gave me a little thumbnail bio, but ironically, I'd already heard about Dominic because I'd just done a story for SI. I'd gone to Waco, Texas, to write about Robert Griffin III, right. their star quarterback there. And in the middle of a long lunch we had, on the Baylor campus, uh, RG3 was, was telling me about how he used to race every kid that came to his grade school. All the new kids would basically, as a rite of passage, have to race this kid who would be ultimately this uh, Olympic trials level sprinter, uh, hurdler rather, and, uh, and generally unbelievable uh, athletic specimen. And he said the only kid who ever challenged him in grade school was this guy named Dominic Whaley, who is who is now this walk on running back at OU, and the name, you know, rang a vague bell in my ears. I'd you know researching OU before the season. I had also done a scouting report on them for our season preview issue. The name had rung a bell, but I didn't know much about him. I filed it away, and then when Gene came to me and said we wanted to do a story on walk ons, I said, well. I wholeheartedly agree. Let's do it on this kid Whaley. And I looked into his story a bit more and it turned out there was a, a long feature there in the offing. So that's how it kind of came about.
2: You know, it's funny. Uh, Pablo's being a little modest here, but like, uh, Robert Griffin, the third, when you were a new student at Pablo's elementary school, you actually had to race him in the times facts <laughs> and, uh, he, you know, he smoked everybody, but, uh, you know, exactly. A Harvard kid. But, uh, no, uh, as far as Whaley goes, you know, an interesting thing about him is he's surrounded in the backfield by five-star and four-star recruits. How totally. How has he been able to, like, how did this happen?
4: Yeah, you know, it's a, great, it's a great question, and it still is, you know, kind of mind-blowing to think about. But you're right. I mean, there are these five-star, four-star recruits who are still in the backfield at OU, and he just was productive. I mean, this kid ended up being the leading rusher, in the spring game for two springs in a row, uh, he arrived at OU in the spring of 2010, and literally showed up at out of nowhere. I mean, had transferred to Oklahoma as a normal student, had gone to Langston University, an NIAI historically black college um, in Oklahoma, and ended up just uh, just transferring out, washing out of there, and wanted to move somewhere closer to his girlfriend. Had a list of schools narrowed it down to what he could afford, and Oklahoma ended up being being uh, the prime candidate. And uh, and came in, called up Merv Griffin, the director of uh, football operations at Oklahoma, who was ironically enough, when I talked to Merv, uh, Merv Johnson told me that uh, he was also the offensive coordinator when uh, Rudy Rudiger was at Notre Dame in 1975, well, yeah. and so he, we traded a few uh, Rudy stories there, but. He ends up uh, showing up in Merv Johnson's office, introducing himself. Merv Johnson says, who are you? What do you do? He says, you know, I was a reserve at, uh, at Langston. Merv immediately thinks to himself, even as far as walk-ons go, Oklahoma's hand standards are pretty high. We want a kid to be a star at an, at an, at an uh, right. NIAI school. And, uh, but then Dominic starts saying, well, I can do these things. And he starts listing what he could, uh, what he could jump, how fast he ran, what he could lift. And Merv Johnson says, well, you know, if you could do any of those things, then you should be fine here, and ends up proving, blowing some of Adrian Peterson's records out of the water at OU, which is ridiculous, ends up becoming the leading rusher of the two springs, basically it's about working everybody else, becomes as productive as anybody could have ever have dreamt, and, uh, and has forced his way into that starting role.
2: Well, you know, it's funny, as this story gets more and more steam, you know, the, the Whaley story has been a story in college football this year before your article. You know he's, yeah. he's been productive all season, and it keeps picking up steam. SI does a feature, which you did so fantastically. And then he had a great game at Kansas the other night. And just the momentum is building and building and building. Why isn't this kid on scholarship? And I guess you found out that there's some kind of rule or something that Bob Stoops is being a little bit maybe stubborn about.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think, I think he's a little bit stubborn is a, is a fair assessment. I mean, he has, in his credit, I mean, he runs a program, he, and I asked him about it after the game against Texas, after they blew them out, and, and Dominic had, again, you know, almost 130 total yards and a touchdown, and I asked him, well, what's the rule and why hasn't this happened yet? And he says, I've done it at OU the same way for 13 years. A kid needs to be the starter and look like he's going to be the starter next year. And, and then we give him a scholarship. There have been kids who have missed that narrowly and we haven't done it. So to do it differently for any other kid would be unfair in his eyes. And, and to me, you know, that's all well and good. But, you know, I think a policy should probably be flexible, in regards to a kid who comes out of nowhere and is as good as Dominic is, better than any other walk-on Oklahoma has had before in its history, as good as any walk-on we've seen in college football, and certainly, and this is even even more important to me, is someone who needs it. I mean, this is a kid who right. who took who's taken out loans, who has two young children of his own with his fiance, who uh, whose parents are both, who is his mother and his stepdad are both in the army. His dad lives in Florida and works at the cheesecake factory. You know, these, these are, this is a family, like a lot of families in America, who struggle to meet college payments. And certainly a scholarship would be one big benefit for him in terms of uh, taking some load off his shoulders. And he's obviously getting jobs while the season... He's trying to get a job while the season's going on and has been trying to get jobs out of season just to support himself.
2: I don't know if you know the answer to this question or not, but when eventually, at some point, it seems like Oklahoma is going to give him a scholarship, when they do so, can they only give him a scholarship that is effective from the point of the day they grant it on? Or can they pick up some of these loans that he's taken out? You know, like, like how does this – is he going to have loans when he comes out regardless? Or can Oklahoma kind of pick those up?
4: My understanding is that the scholarship only takes – goes into effect from the, from the date of until right. you know going forward. Figured.
2: Yeah, so kind of I don't figured. think
4: that Oklahoma could retroactively apply any of this stuff. That would be great, and that would be very flexible, and probably something right. that, in a perfect world, among other things, the NCAA would do to be more generous to student athletes. But but that's something that I don't think could happen. Um, and the loans that Dom—I mean, I mean—the guy has his own family. <laughs> he's he's his own. I mean, literally with his children and his wife and his fiancee, soon to be wife. I mean, he's he's supporting people beyond himself. And so I don't know if Oklahoma can ever begin to cover that under the rules of the NCAA, which is a whole other digression in terms of what the NCAA could do to provide for for DD student-athletes like that.
2: I know you're a writer and you're not a scout, but you had a chance to really get a real close look at Whaley at the Texas game. And I'm just curious, is he someone, based on your eye test, does he look like he's someone who can be an NFL-quality
4: running back someday? Completely, completely, and I think we will see him. As the concern would be, well, hopefully, oh, you give him the scholarship before he goes to the NFL. I mean, if he wanted to, he could hang on with an NFL team after this season, most likely. I don't, I don't know if he'll do that. I think education, getting his degree. His mom, who's a sergeant in the army, was very, was very uh, clear on wanting to him to get his education out of the way first. But I mean, the guy is more physically capable. Than Adrian Peterson was at OU. Uh, and, and from the broad jump, vertical jump, squat lift, hang clean, he runs a 43940 to Peterson's 437. You know, those are numbers that will get you in a room with an NFL GM every day of the week. And the fact that he now has production on the field to do it. Um, that certainly is only another uh, feather in his cap. I mean, does he have a ways to go? Sure, I think we saw against Texas, you know, when they stack the box like that, he can struggle in between the tackles. But at the same time, if he's going to break out a 64-yard run every once in a while, which is something that Oklahoma has seen him do in practices for for two years now, um, and he can catch passes, which he did against Texas, and and has been doing more and more recently, then that's, uh, that's a pretty versatile, very capable running back to, to, to add to your team in the NFL. And, you know, based
2: on just the way you talk about him, it seems like he's the kind of guy that when the draft process starts is just going to rise and rise and rise. If he is as good of a workout wonder as he sounds, you know, because this happens every year where there's these guys who come out as maybe a second round prospect and then they get in the gym and they start working at the combine and they run a four, three in Indianapolis and bam, they're a first round pick.
4: Yeah, I think that's probably what's going to happen, is that people are going to get a sense of his measurables and all of the scouting lingo that people love to talk about at the Combine, and they're going to see and interview him and realize this kid's pretty smart. I mean, he's he's extremely level-headed. He has a great, great backstory. I'm sure Subway, where he worked, would would give him an endorsement <laughs> once he gets into the NFL. I mean, this guy was literally an employee there going after, uh, after spring practice in the spring of 2010, and to go from where he was then to, to where he is now is kind of mind blowing. And I think he'll he'll pass all the the eye tests and even the uh, the face to face sort of intangible meeting uh, when he uh, when he gets to that process, whether it's next spring or the spring after that.
2: Uh, Whaley has of course worked his way up to number one in on the depth chart. Uh, Brendan Clay and Roy Finch are two running backs who were both very highly recruited, and uh, they're both uh, sophomores. Uh, what, did you get a chance to sense? I don't know how Brennan and Brennan and Roy feel about this. Uh, you know where they fit in as like the whole running back situation as a threesome. Like is there, are Brennan and, and Roy guys who are going to benefit from this? Is like a year to kind of watch Dominic and or you know where, where's the running back unit? How cohesive are they at Oklahoma?
4: Yeah, I I think they're closer than you'd think. I mean, in terms of, you know, you might theorize, well, there may be some residual bitterness from these highly touted recruits who came in, and that may be the case on 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 an internal personal level, but there really isn't that much discord that I've sensed with those guys. I mean, Brennan Clay, obviously a five-star guy in 2010, and and Roy Finch was four stars. And then you have Brandon Williams, who was a five-star in 2011, who's also back there. And uh, But yeah, I mean, they... As far as what I saw, and I didn't spend a ton of time with those guys, they're not exactly aching to, to get out of there right yet. I think, if anything, having a walk-on who's proved himself like Dominic has and shown that he's not just a flash in the pan is is a pretty, pretty big kick to your rear end in terms of showing you the kind of work ethic that you need to have to succeed at that level. I mean, it's a cliche in college sports to say that, well, once you have the jersey on, it's just the guy who's more productive, who's going to get the position in the starting role. But but seeing Dominic Whaley come out of nowhere to do that has got to be inspiring to those guys. And I don't know if, uh, you know, again, if Whaley stays for one more or two years, these guys are going to have their chance regardless. And I think it's, uh, you know, they ha- they cannot work him, I guess, is the bottom line. I mean, if they're better than him, then they should prove it. And then they'll get the opportunities to get some, uh, some, some starting snaps in the backfield.
2: One well, last thing about this particular case, and I want to ask you some other stuff, but, You had a chance to be around Oklahoma, and I I know you said you you didn't get a chance really to get into the Austin box stuff or anything, but I guess my just general question is, does does everything seem okay with this team? Do they seem like they're uh, mentally okay going forward? And do you think, having watched them, that this is a team that can avoid a road loss that has haunted them like last year to Missouri and beat? Uh, Oklahoma State and end up in a national championship game. Does, do they seem like that caliber of a team to you, both mentally they, and talent-wise?
4: They do. They do, and I think once the BCS picture obviously shakes out, you're going to see you know some team, whether it's LSU or Alabama out of the SEC, get to the title game. And and Oklahoma, I mean, Oklahoma State's right behind them, but I think Oklahoma's is is to me the cream. Of of the no pun intended of of the Big Twelve and which makes them a favorite for the BCS title game. I mean they have pretty much everything you want. I mean they their offense is is ridiculous. I mean the thing about Oklahoma is you have Landry Jones who's already this all world quarterback, and then you add Ryan Broyles who's been there, and then Kenny Still's who's this guy they can just loft in the end zone every time, you know. And then you have a third receiver who's now who's good, and then you got this defense and a tailback. I mean the defense scored more points than Texas did. Texas offense did when they played each other. And Texas, you know, obviously is on a down year, but that's pretty ridiculous no matter how you slice it. So, yeah, I mean, can any team lose in college football? Certainly week to week. But I don't think anybody should be shocked if Oklahoma was in the BCS title game. I think they have the right mix of veterans and and just sheer talent and athleticism on that team to to get it done. And certainly I, I expect them to be there.
2: You know, another kind of theme of the article... The, the focus of the article, yes, was about Whaley, but there was kind of this overriding point that as rules are kind of evolving and changing in college football, the walk on is becoming more and more important. Can you kind of explain, uh, like, kind of the bigger picture that was a part of this article, uh, kind of setting aside the specific Whaley example?
4: Yeah, yeah. I think there was this undercurrent, this sub theme, I guess, of the fact that the NCAA is changing, and I think there's actually. You know, more proposals that just came out, I think, this past week about shrinking the NCAA uh, mandated roster size for a Division 1A football team even more. But the bottom line is that the scholarship limit for a football team at the D1 level has gone from unlimited in 1976, that was the last time it was, to 95 players, to 95 scholarships in 1977 to 85 scholarships since 94 and then you have uh, gender equity, which Title IX, which is forced ratios to be in line in such a way that your male teams need to be in a certain uh, numerical range compared to your population, and so forth and so on of the of the water student bodies. So the bottom line is that football scholarships are becoming more and more rare on a per team basis. And so the question is, how do you fill in those gaps? And and what's happening? What we've seen is not that we're getting Necessarily, I think there's been some of this, but beyond just pure talent redistribution in terms of players who may have been second or third stringers at Oklahoma going instead to say Texas Tech, I think you're also seeing players who have a tremendous amount of self confidence and a certain work ethic and faith in themselves who want to be walk-ons without scholarships and are going to these bigger schools still. And that's how Dominique Whaley ends up at Oklahoma and how, some of the other guys he detailed in the story, like in Hawaii end up going from a junior college to d one is because they end up emerging at these places where they could use talented players you know and take a flyer on them basically and let them work their ways, their way up and so we 're seeing more and more stories like that uh, throughout college football at Hawaii at Stanford with a receiver like Ryan Whalen and Griff Whalen. Ryan Whelan was a captain who was a former walk-on who was drafted by the Bengals. It's from Stanford last year. And you have four captains at Hawaii, all walk-ons. And then you get guys like Jordan Kovacs at Michigan and so forth and so on And Wisconsin. Jared Aberderis is a, re- a receiver and a walk-on. So you're seeing more and more of these stories pop up throughout the highest levels of, uh, of football. We're in Buffalo, New York. And uh, going into this NFL season...
2: I think uh, there was maybe a segment of uh, the population here who thought, "Well, the Bills are gonna basically suck for Luck this year, you know, are gonna be bad, right. and you know maybe Andrew Luck will be a guy." Well, turns out they're a little better than that, and who knows? Maybe they're gonna draft somewhere in the middle of the first round, and there's a bunch of other guys that um, could be first round quarterbacks this year. We talked about Landry Jones; he could be in that mix, um, uh, Barkley, or. Uh, the, excuse me, uh, USC's quarterback and a guy that you've had a good chance to really detail. And that's RG three, Robert Griffin, the third. And I want to talk about him for a minute. Um, What do you, how do you view his NFL ceiling? And do you think that the success that Cam Newton has had this year is going to make him a more attractive uh, player? And are there similar? Is that a fair comparison to make?
4: Well, first off, if if the Bills were to draft Robert Griffin the third, that <laughs> that quarterback depth chart from Ryan Fitzpatrick to RG three would be pretty unbelievably intelligent as far as uh, as far as uh, athletes go. I mean, that RG three is a tremendously brilliant guy, and and in terms of his football prospects, I am incredibly incredibly high on him. Um, I think the Cam Newton situation does show that you know we're seeing some translation between having the ability to run and throw and do all those things at the college level and then do it in your freshman year in the NFL. I think there is, there is some, uh, I think there is uh, among NFL scouts, a, a sort of a little bit of renewed optimism there in terms of what a quarterback can do in their first year in the NFL. And RG3 has as many tools as anybody that we've seen probably in football history. And that's just straight up. I mean, the guy, I don't know if anybody else I I did the research, and I found that not in 35 years have we had a quarterback who, at least 35 years, who was projected to be a first-rounder in the NFL and is also a potential Olympian. The guy is a a hurdler at the world-class level. He is incredibly intelligent. He has a strong arm. He's incredibly precise. I mean, he set the NCAA record, I think, for consecutive completions without interception. And Obviously, we know about his ratios uh, this year. So in terms of what he can do, I think he could be... He he is as good a prospect as there is in this country, and if I was an NFL team, I would take him. You know, I wouldn't wait for the mid round. I mean, I would be taking him, you know, in those in the first uh, double digit picks.
2: Yeah, I remember you know when he started to, when he was a freshman. You know, hearing about you know Baylor's finally got this really talented player, and I remember at first thinking you know well. In the first game he played against Oklahoma, it's kind of like, well, all he can do is run, and, you know, we're so fast on the edges here. You know, it's like, "Ah, I don't know. But he's really developed his game as a thrower more and more as he's progressed in college, hasn't he? I mean, he's more than just a guy who runs around fast.
4: That's exactly right, and that's a thing that is stunning because everybody, I think, prior to the season came in and was like, oh, this is the guy who who can run, you know, this unbelievable – run unbelievably fast and is a specimen, but then he comes in and he's – really in the pocket incredibly comfortable and he's showing that he can throw and throw darts across the field he can throw it short he can throw it long and that's the thing that's added to his game that made him such an intriguing prospect more so than he has been in years past because we've seen obviously uh, college football is you know is is dotted with the, the careers of running quarterbacks who failed at the next level from Eric Crouch on up you know and and to have a guy who can throw it and run it and basically run it really as a last resort. You know, he hasn't run that much this year, but he obviously can still do it. I mean, that's that's what's most dangerous about uh, about facing him is that he can beat you literally every way and in ways that a lot of quarterbacks can only dream of doing.
2: The Sportscasters are here with Pablo Torre. Uh, he is a writer for Sports Illustrated at SportsIllustrated.com. You can follow him on Twitter. He is at SIPabloTorre, two R's. Uh, I kind of have... I kind of want to switch gears for the last couple of minutes here. I kind of want to ask you kind of like we've been so blessed here at the Sportscasters to talk to all these fantastic writers at SI. I mean, we've talked to anyone from Peter King to uh, Andrew Lawrence. We've talked to John Wertheim, Lee Jenkins, and everyone. It's such a deep bunch there, and it seems like everyone kind of has a specific role and does their thing, and does it well, and world-class. Where do you see yourself on this incredible bench, and what is it that you try to do, and what's your niche at SI, and what do you try to accomplish as a writer there?
4: You know, that, that's a good question. and something that I, I would be lying if I said I didn't contemplate that on a fairly regular basis, exactly what am I trying to do uh, on this incredibly talented cast of people and you know it's funny when you talk about talking to guys like that like P- Peter Kang or Lee or John or any of these guys I mean I sort of feel the same way you know on staff is that I try to pick their brains as much as I can and, and I mean Lee Jenkins I've, I've talked to just in terms of advice I've talked to him I don't know how many in times the world. we first met at, at the final four um, a couple of years ago and he's I mean all these guys I sort of see as, as sort of mentors in their own way and to me, I mean, I'm, you know, I think I'm the youngest writer at SI still, and so I'm trying to, to you know, just pull my weight, and make sure my bosses are happy. But in a perfect world, I, I mean, the stories that I like doing, I love doing college sports, obviously, college basketball, college football. But I mean, the stories that I'd like to do, and I've done a little bit of, are sort of more enterprise stories. I, I've done a piece on on how and why athletes go broke for SI, a, a long bonus piece. I did one on mental illness among baseball players. I did one on seven-footers for uh, the afterlife of seven-footers after they retired from basketball last year. And so I love the offbeat, really. I mean, even even in these college football stories, you can sort of tell. I mean, Dominic Whaley is an offbeat story. Robert Griffin III, until he sort of broke into the mainstream, was was more offbeat in terms of what he did off of the field. And that's kind of what I, what I like to do and what I envision myself doing, is that I know I'm not going to be you know, I'm not going to be a substitute NFL scout. I'm not going to have the Rolodex of of Peter King or, or these other guys who are on the beat daily, but I love sort of being the general assignment guy who can plug in and see stories from a slightly different angle and hopefully go in depth with them. And that's kind of what, uh, what I aspire to do. But, you know, mostly I'm happy to have a job and happy to, when I call up these guys and email them, they, uh, they answer me. So that's where I am right now.
2: Right. Well, you mentioned, uh, Lee Jenkins, he's just the nicest guy in the world. I I, I try to get that on the record as, as much as I can. I mean, <laughs> he he's is. been I mean, so just- great to us. I it, I mean, just it's, he's unbelievable. But uh, uh, what about Twitter and what about the i the magazine on the iPad? I, honestly, mm-hmm. I emailed you I think at one o'clock in the morning on Tuesday because I wait up every Tuesday until midnight to get the uh, newest magazine on the iPad and it's just stunning and the way that it, it seems like it's taking this magazine to new heights. How, how does what you do, do you consider the fact that this is going to be on the iPad and, and how do you use Twitter? Do you mostly just like to promote your stuff or do you kind of put stuff that didn't fit in there and maybe those are two separate questions and two separate entities, but I guess it's more of just like a new technology type yeah. of question.
4: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's funny because I'm in the office at SI on, on a fairly, on a semi-regular basis, I guess, when you add up all the days of the year. But but most, I mean, when I'm on the road, I'm usually showing up there. And so I've gotten a pretty good seat in terms of the iPad and, and how it's unfolded till now. And it's pretty incredible, I mean, in terms of what we do. And it's becoming a place where I think the user interface and just the aesthetics of it you know, is, is, is that's been established, and now it's sort of like, well, what can we do content-wise? And so for me, I think we're constantly thinking of what else could we put on there that would help readers, and so we'll do extra Q&As, we'll do extra kind of pieces, original reporting pieces to throw up there, and and God knows so much stuff gets cut out of the magazine and the print version that we hope to find a space for it there because it's still worthwhile, it's still edited, it still, still goes through the whole SI process, and so it would be a shame to lose those forever. So the iPad is certainly, along with the web, obviously, a good landing place for those things and but yeah, I mean SI is all about I mean it's funny. I you know, I'm I have a blog, I have a Tumblr, I, I'm on Twitter all the time more than anybody even more than my family members and friends whatever want me to be, I think. And so Twitter to me it's 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 funny. I mean, the stuff I end up sending out is like seventy five percent stuff that I just find entertaining to myself that I think would that I would once have have emailed to friends, hopefully to make them laugh and then it's yeah, I mean the, the rest of it is trying to get uh some of my uh, my work out there just talking to other right i mean it's funny twitter is so media heavy and i think yeah. that's probably how it's going to be for a for a while it's just that that's where all these journalists have agreed to come and congregate and talk to each other and send their work out that i honestly use twitter as as someone else might use their rss feed uh, or their bookmarks, you know. I just sort of use Twitter as my gateway into sports writing, and so I'm usually starting there first thing in the morning and reading through what else has been coming out since uh, I've been away. And so I use, I see Twitter really as as sort of the gateway to uh, to, to my reading consumption these days. The
2: sportscasters here with Pablo Torrey from Sports Illustrated, SportsIllustrated dot com. We just talked about Twitter. He is there at SI Pablo uh, Last thing, now that. All the sportscasters listeners are huge fans of you. Uh, <laughs> what can they look forward to? What's coming up and what's going to be around? What are you working on?
4: Yeah. Well, uh, now I'm getting into college basketball mode. Uh, I'll be splitting time between college football and college basketball for the rest of the, uh, of the college sports calendar, I think. So I'm talking uh well, today I was, I was waiting for some calls from the folks at Kansas to, to get ready for a, a scouting report on them. And, uh, yeah, I'm not going to spoil in terms of what uh, what features I'm working on, but I promise you that I will aim to be as productive as I possibly can in between my Twitter, my Twitter, <laughs> my Twitter posts, which are obviously of some great importance. So, hopefully, we'll have some good college basketball and football stories for you guys uh, the rest of the way, along with uh, a couple of enterprise projects in the back burner that I'll be working on with a coworker. Hopefully that I can tell you guys more about uh, the next time uh, we talk.
2: All right. It sounds great. It's Pablo Satori. Thank you very, very much. We appreciate all the time. Uh, Hopefully, we lived up to it on our end. And uh, thank you very much for doing this. And we look forward to doing it again in the future.
4: Yeah, no, it was an honor. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you very much. We appreciate it.
2: (laughs) All right, we have to thank... Pablo S. Torrey from SportsIllustrated.com, Sports Illustrated. You know, it never fails that the Sports Illustrated people just bring it, you know. So thanks to Pablo. Real Quick Book Club Update. I think we did it in two minutes last week. I'd like to keep it to about that length today. Uh, Again, there's three books in the mix right now. There's the UFC book by John Wertheim. There is the uh, Greatest American Sports Writing Series, the 2011 edition, which is edited by Jane Levy. And, of course, last week we threw Sweetness into the mix by Jeff Perlman. And it's interesting that since we've thrown that book into the mix, I noticed that Jeff has kind of been all over talking about it. Don, have you seen any of these a uh, football life specials on the NFL Network? That's what the uh, Belichick thing was Started, started right? with the I'd, two Belichick quotes. That's the only one I've
3: seen so far. Then
2: I think they did Kurt Warner, and they did – there's one in between Warner, maybe, and Belichick, but last week's was Walter Payton, and Jeff Perlman was a big part of that specific thing. And it's interesting because I mentioned last week that there's been a lot of backlash against sweetness initially, but it seems now that people have read the book and kind of gotten a full understanding of what it is as opposed to just looking at the initial excerpt that was in SI. I think that the, the book has been taken for what it is, and that's a really great football book. So... Three things we're reading right now. The UFC book by John Wertheim, The Greatest American Sports Writers 2011, and Sweetness by Jeff Perlman. So make sure you're reading. We're going to take a break right now, and we're going to be right back with our second guest of the day, which is Matt Wrights from viewfrommyseats.com and Pro Hockey Talk on NBC Sports. <laughs> Our next guest is from Ontario, California, and is a graduate of UC Irvine. He is the creator and editor-in-chief of the website viewformyseats.com. The site was created in 2007 to be a place for diehard fans of all sports, but in 2009 it evolved to be a hockey-only site. Today our guest is a writer for Pro Hockey Talk on NBCSports.com and an occasional contributor at The Fourth Period, a hockey lifestyle magazine. He's also contributed on Yahoo's Puck Daddy and Hockeywood LA. He was also featured on ESPN Sports Center. A warm sportscasters welcome to the very talented Matt Wrights. Is that right? Wrights? It is. All right. Very good. I am a first time. <laughs> welcome, Matt. How are you doing today?
0: I'm doing great. How
2: are you? Uh, very good. We're excited to have you. Uh, I've been a long time uh, Twitter follower of you ViewForMySeats.com. Couldn't exactly tell you how. I discovered it, but I did one time, and uh, I've always enjoyed some of the interactions that you've had on Twitter with, uh, with your followers, and uh, glad I reached out. We are always, uh, we're from Buffalo, New York, uh, pretty far from you, but we love to talk hockey on the show, and we've done it with a, a lot of different people, so we're al- always excited to start with someone new. And I guess just to kind of see where you're at and to get your perspective, I guess where I want to start is just to know uh, we're about, you know, four to, if you're the Penguins, seven games into the season. And I'm just curious what has kind of piqued your interest? What's surprised you? What's kind of went the way you've expected it to? What's a really big story in Matt Wright's mind here the first week or two of the season?
0: Um, you know, it's, it's pretty early. There's a lot of things. I mean, every team you can look at and, you know, get something out of it. Uh, I'm surprised that the Flyers are gelling sorely. Um, I thought that was going to take a couple months. They, you know, it, for that matter, the Sabres are doing the same thing. Um, a lot of new faces, but they're, they're gelling pretty well. Um, I'm a little bit surprised that the Sharks are 1-3. Uh, they have a really good team. Um, I, I'm i not 100% sure they're going to win the Pacific anyways, but... Um, you know, real well surprised they got off to a slow start. So those are good. It's always fun to watch the Maple Leafs start out good because usually their um, their fans get excited and they have their hearts ripped out by the end of the year. So that's always
2: fun. Yeah, we love that, especially here. We <laughs> love to see Maple Leafs fans' hearts ripped out. You know, I, we I had a really interesting discussion with a Leafs fan, and just because you brought it here, I want to get your opinion on it. But sure. we have this, you know, almost college sports like rivalry between the Sabers and the Leafs. And the reason it's like that is because they're, they have such difficulty, the real Leafs fans have such difficulty getting tickets at the Air Canada Center that some of the sellouts here in Buffalo will kind of give them their tickets at a premium and Leafs fans are willing and we end up with this kind of like 50-50 split sometimes at the arena and it's kind of a real college atmosphere. We always go back and forth with this. While you ha- we want the Leafs fans are all, we won these cups and... As a Sabres fan, I'm like, well, but you haven't won any while we were in the league, and you haven't won any since there was more than six teams. Where do you fall in that argument? Like, is a cup a cup, or like, are you like me and it's like, well, we could have won cups if we were in the league when there were six teams, all six teams that were in the league when there were sixteen won won cups.
0: Well, you know, that's that's usually um, that used to be the argument with the Red Wings, also um, back before you know. You know, 95, I think, when they won their first one. That was kind of the argument was, you know, you have all these Cups, but you haven't won anything since. Now, and now they've been good for, you know, two decades. So that argument goes out the window. Um, I grew up as an LA Kings fan. And so from that perspective, I mean, the Kings have won nothing. They, they've, they've been to the finals once. So you kind of got to give props for props do. Um, I mean, the Kings have been in the league, Same, you know, as the Sabres, what, 45 years?
2: Well, we um, started in 1970.
0: Yep. So, well, yeah, right. The Sabers were the second wave of expansion. but right. Um. Still, it's it's you know you got to give them the props for score, for doing that. But you know, when there are six teams, you you should win cups. I think for me, the bigger problem I have with that is more the Canadians. You know, I'll give the Canadians their props for the 70s. Um. You know, when they won their four cups, of, especially the four cups at the end of the decade. Right. But you know. Is it 25
2: cups they have? Uh, you know? that's yeah, a lot. You
0: know, 15 of those, uh, I've got a big asterisk next to
2: them. <laughs> right, yeah. So you're kind of like me. It's like, look at when there are six teams in the league, all six of you just basically pass the thing around. You know what I mean? All six teams want it. Chicago want it. Rangers want it. You know, so. Anyway, shut up, please. Well, Chicago, did,
0: Chicago didn't win it much. Neither no, did Boston. Neither or the, the Rangers okay. didn't Boston. Either. Either one of those really wanted that much. But, right. but still, yeah, you're right. I mean, there's only six teams.
2: Okay, what do you think about the uh, return to hockey in Winnipeg and how that has went so far? They got their first win last night, I believe, uh, beating Pittsburgh. What, what do you think about kind of the enthusiasm that goes with that and uh, just kind of how hockey is uh, in this new market this year? Well, old but new. <laughs> well,
0: I think it's great. I mean, anybody that saw the first game, um, the atmosphere was, it was more than a playoff game, which was, you know, that was cool to see. Um, I think they got the first win. It's kind of nice for them. I mean, the first game was, there was all of the, the hype around, you know, the Canadians coming in for the first, you know, game in 15 years. And then the second game, their first game on the road, they went to Phoenix. And so there's that whole old Jets versus new Jets thing. So that wasn't necessarily a normal game either. I think the Jets really liked they could get, you know, back to playing on the ice. Uh, when they play against the Penguins the other night, and it always helps when Crosby and Malkin are in the line up. But, um,
4: you know, I like it. I
0: wrote an article last week that was talking about this, too, and, you know, I'm excited. I, I'm one of the people that thinks that, you know, Winnipeg, you just look at that market and look at how excited they are. You know, if it, you know, looks, looks like a market, talks like a market, it's probably a hockey market. So it's great that it's there. Um, my thing is that I kind of... Um, you know, I I've interacted with a lot of people from Atlanta and from Phoenix, and um, you know, I can I can only imagine what's going on in Atlanta these days. You know, um,
2: <laughs> basketball. You know, have
0: your, you know, you have your favorite team, and you know, you you dedicate your time and your money and your heart, and and then you know, that, the, the diehards they didn't do anything wrong. They just there weren't enough of them. You know, <laughs> right. So um, you know, from that perspective, it's kind of tough. I think that's kind of the the California to me because you know I'm I'm out in um, you know, a non-traditional market. But, um, you know, as far as the Jets go, just, you know, I say on that. I mean, it, it's great to see that market up there, and um, hopefully some of those young players can, um, you know, grow a little bit this year.
2: While we're kind of talking about it in markets and things like that, what are some markets that you look at and think, you know, those need to be replaced? And, well, Phoenix maybe comes to mind initially. That's still kind of on shaky ground. Is it going to stay? Is it not? Would you prefer to see if a team is relocated, would you prefer a Quebec city and another Canadian market? Or would you like to see a new U S market get a chance, maybe like a Kansas city or I don't know. I've heard crazy places like even Honolulu mentioned, but where, where, where do you stand on, you know, the next move for this league?
0: Um, you know, I, I, I've been to Phoenix a few times for games and, you know, like I said, I, I like their fans a lot. Um, they're the first ones to come to mind just because they don't have an owner and, and there's, there, there are some serious deadlines happening with them. I mean, you hear that every year, but there's some serious deadlines coming down with the city of Glendale isn't going to drop, you know, another 20 million um, next season. So if they can't find an owner and they've, they've been looking for a while, you know, they're probably, they're probably on the chopping block, which I I hate to say that just because like I said, it's, you know, uh, I like, I like a lot of the fans. I like some of the writers there. um, And it's, you know, within feasible distance for me. But, um, you know, I've heard some different things. For a while it was, you heard uh, Las Vegas was in the mix, and, you know, that's kind of gone away with the the economy turning south. Um, You hear about Seattle. Uh, Seattle would like to get a a team up there. Um, That's a a big market, and it's close to Vancouver. I think that would be a nice um, built-in rivalry right there in the Pacific Northwest. Um, but you know what, Kansas City did a lot. They have a great arena with the Sprint Center. Um, would love to get a team in there. They've been trying to get a team in there for a while. And, you know, they sold out a preseason game, uh, between the Penguins and Kings. So, that goes a long way towards it, too. So, um, you know what, when it comes down to it, um, wherever the money is, I hate saying that. Right. But, you know, wherever the money is, you know, whether it's Quebec, I mean, Quebec City's obviously trying to put together, um you know, the arena and the financing and all that stuff. And they have some some bureaucracy issues up there. But, um, you know, wherever the money is, I mean, the the advantage Kansas City has right now um, is is they have a building that's just waiting. You know, I mean, you could hypothetically have a team move in ready next season. And um, so that's the advantage they have. But, um, you know, if you're asking me what I'd like to see, I'd like to see Seattle. I think that'd be pretty cool.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, while we're talking about this, and the sportscasters are here, we're kind of jumping all around, talking a little bit of hockey with Matt Wrights from viewfrommyseats.com and Pro Hockey Talk as part of NBCSports.com. And the NHL, no matter what happens with Phoenix, they're going to have to do some realigning next year. And let's just assume Phoenix stays where they are just for the sake of argument. There's been a lot of plans thrown around. I know Pro uh, Puck Daddy did a really cool article, kind of outlining some of the different plans that have been bannied about. If Commissioner Batman came to you tomorrow, Matt, and said, "The power is yours. Realign this league as you see fit," what would you? Uh, what would be your plan?
0: Um, you know, I, I'm not exactly. I mean, I obviously with different teams, I'm not sure what I would where I put what, but um, I think that the first thing that i make sure no matter what I do with the schedule is i make sure that every team plays a home and away, um, everywhere. That, that's something that I've harped on for a while. Um, so I hope when they re- redo the whole league that, you know, um, you know, you have anybody like say, you know, John Tavares or Steven Stamkos, you know, it'd be nice for people in LA or San Jose or Anaheim to be able to see each of those guys, you know, once a year. Um, I think that I would like to see. Um, I like to see Columbus. If, if you go with like the whole East and West thing, if, if that at least stays, I'd like to see Columbus go into the East um, just to give them a fight, give that market a fighting chance. Um, they're in the Eastern time zone, and so they don't. You know, a lot of their fans won't see it, and you have to you have to call a spade a spade. It's not a traditional market, and you want to get the fans interested. Um, if they have divisional games, or oh, I'm sorry, if, if you have, games in their own conference not starting until ten thirty at night i mean you can't expect them to do that um you know detroit's a little bit of a different animal just because they've had fans around forever um you know and, and they want to be in the east so bad i kind of don't want it to be just a you know just to <laughs> tell them they can't get everything they want <laughs> um so i don't know what do you think what, what's your big plan
2: well what i don't want is them to just kind of wimp out and just kind of like move winnipeg and then maybe balance it off by moving columbus or nashville you know i think that they need to uh, i love the point you make about uh you know having to play at least a home and home there's a great example of that in buffalo this year pat Kane, who's born and bred here isn't going to make a trip to buffalo this year you know and uh that jumps out when you're splitting up season tickets something like that jumps out it's like wow the blackhawks aren't coming here at all this year you know, so I agree with you that one thing they need to address is to make sure that each team comes here every year. You know, when I was a kid, I was a huge Pavel Bure fan. And I lived for the day in the year where the Canucks would come to Buffalo and I would have the chance to see him in person. So I feel bad for, for kids around Buffalo who, you know, love Pat Kane and want to be the next Pat Kane here not having that chance this year. So I think that's a great point. Another thing is I think if you're going to stick with Eastern and West, like you said, you've got to get teams who are in the Eastern time zone out of the Western Conference. I don't think that makes any sense. And, you know, another thing I'd like to see happen is, you know, forget about this Atlantic and Northeast and Southwest stuff. Let's get back to some of the, you know, a lot of a lot of what's great about hockey is the tradition, and I miss the – Campbell and Wales, and I know that's maybe confusing to some non-hockey fans, but you know what? I think hockey has to get more and more used to the fact that hockey fans are hockey fans and people who aren't just aren't. You know, but it's, so,
0: you know it's, it's, it's as arbitrary as the AFC and the NFC in football, you know? Right. People know that they're, they're spread out all over. They're, you know, intermingled throughout the, you know, the United States, but people figure it out. And, you know, I, I'm the same way. I still think of, you know, the Kings and everybody out here as it's the Smythe Division. We'll always be the Smythe
2: Division. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and we're the Adams Division, you know. And we'll always be the Adams Division, and uh, you know, sure that they've 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 experimented with this goofy stuff. But you know, when you think about hockey and what's great about it, it's like when you go to the Hockey Hall of Fame. There's all these beautiful trophies, and there's no sport in the world who's as rich in trophies as the NHL is, and you just walk around that old bank and you look at all these great trophies and the history of them, you know, and I love the fact that they still call the MVP the Hart Trophy, you know, so if they can do it with the awards, why not do it with the uh, with the division? So I'd like to see them go back to that too, you know, so I think if they yeah. could address those things, you know, I think that'd be great.
0: Yeah, I think that's part of hockey, I mean, you know, it's it's, it's part of the culture and it's part of the, you know, I'm not, not that it's a secret handshake, but you know, you go and you can talk like that where it's like who do you do think so in the calder? And it's it's when you're learning about hockey and getting into hockey, um, that's part of it. You know, you learn what everything's called and it's it's exciting learning these stuff. So and then once you do and you can, you know, talk to other fans and, and i I am a big fan of that too, with the they're I'm I'm starting to sound like an old man. I want <laughs> um the old names, I want the the old home at homes and while we're at it I'd like to the home teams to wear white jerseys. So oh, um
2: goodness Jus- gracious.
0: just Turn, turn the clock back to, like, 1987 or something and make me make me a kid again, and I'll be happy.
2: <laughs> uh, let's talk a little bit about the Kings, since you're there. They're a really interesting team to me. They are a team that I think just, if they got one break and had Kopitar, they could have made a great run last year, uh, protect, protect the lead in the one game, and they beat San Jose even without Kopitar, I think. Uh, you're close to them, you see them. Are they as good as I think, or am I overrating them a little bit by considering them one of the huge Stanley Cup contenders in the Western Conference?
0: Um, no, I think they are. Uh, when we were doing our predictions, I, I put them second behind the Canucks just because you know the Canucks had a lot of stuff from last year and they were great. Um, you look at them on paper and there's there's they don't really have a weak spot For the longest time, they didn't have a second line center and they didn't have any left-wings on the on the roster. He uh, reamed and in a uh, full season of Penner, and he's in shape. I've seen him, and he's, you know, he's obviously going through some stuff right now with a, a confusion to his leg, but, you know, looking at him, he's, he's in shape. So the left-wing settled, and then with the Mike Richards trade, of course, that, makes, that gives you Kopitar Richards down the middle, and all of a sudden, Jarrett Stoll is a pretty good third-line center. So... Um, you yeah, know, you have that. You have Scuderi and Mitchell who were born to play playoff hockey on um, the back end. Drew um, you know, Davy is an elite defenseman. So, um, And then you have Click and Bernier and that. So I, I really don't think they have any glaring weaknesses. Uh, one thing we have seen so far is the depth of scoring hasn't been there. Uh, I think they have nine goals on the year so far, and um, Kopitar has seven points. <laughs> um, so, don't quote me, nine or ten goals, but he has seven points. So, um, we'll see what happens with them. Everything's there on paper. We're going to see if they've learned the lessons. The last two seasons, uh, they got into the playoffs and they had some serious problems with pushback. When you know they played well, and in, in both the last two seasons, they won a game on the road. And um, when they came back home, uh, you know, in, in the playoffs, teams will take it to another level. When the Sharks and the Canucks over the last two years took it to another level, um, the Kings, the young Kings, didn't know what to do. Um, we're going to see this year if they've kind of learned the lesson of, you know, when the other team brings to that level, can they raise their game? Um, and if they can, they're, they're going to be a, a team to be reckoned with for sure.
2: There was a lot of talk when Richards and Carter got traded that it was a locker room move more than anything and that, you know, those two guys, for whatever reason, the dynamic wasn't there. How is Richards fit in with the Kings?
0: Uh, great. From what I've, everything I've seen and heard, um, you know, um, I'm in the locker room, and it seems like he's getting along with everyone. He's um, kind of a, a quiet, more soft-spoken guy in the room right now. Um, but I think that's part of also getting to his new teammates. But, you know, um, I would heard some stories about in, in Philadelphia with him being standoffish and stuff. And I think that's a two-way street, I think, with the media. I, I just think that, um, you know, it, it escalates. When things aren't going well, um, it escalates. He was playing Hurt last year. Um, I think it's a new beginning. I think he needed it. I think he needed it, but he fits in. Um, he fits in well. And I think that it's nice that they're not asking him to be captain. They're not asking him to be the first line center. Um, he's he's a second line guy who can play two way, and um, um, the organization loves him. They're all the ex Philly guys with um, Dean Lombardi and, and Terry Murray and Ron Hextall. Uh, you know they think the world of him, so uh, he has every opportunity to succeed here. And he, so far, it looks like he fits in perfect.
2: Uh Anaheim, another team I, I'd like to talk to you about, just down the road from the Kings there, and they've started out four and one only with the one loss in Europe to the Sabres. And it seems like this is a team with unbelievable high end talent. Do they have enough other parts to be a serious Stanley Cup contender? Uh,
0: that's that's a great question. Um if you asked me that before the before the season started, I'd say no. Um but you look at their team. I think that they have the potential to be a good this regular season. Um, I'm not sure that they're going to be necessarily built for the playoffs. But the reason I say that is if you look at their defense, they have guys like uh, Lou Erikssonovsky and Cam Fowler. You know, going to probably have a breakout year this year. Um, you know, those guys are they're more offensive defensemen. And I don't know that they're going to be able to withstand the rigors in the playoffs, just because the game slows down so much and it's more a grinding game. With um, you know, where size kind of is a, is a big thing. Uh, but during the regular season, if they can get the the pace of the game to to be quick, which they have so far this year, uh, they would look good. I mean, they did throw out the Sharks twice, uh, which was which was impressive. They played uh, well against the the Blues. Uh, and they beat them last weekend, so, you know, I I think that they're a good team. Their third line is huge with Pagliano and um, Smith-Pelly and Andrew Gordon who was in the Capitals organization. Um, Those guys, that's one of the keys to their team because we all know that the the Bobby Ryan gets off Perry line is going to be great. I mean, that might be the best line in the league. And um, Solani makes the second line, you know, decent. Corey Lou's getting older and Blake's hurt, but I mean that's there. That third line being able to play the speed, being able to match up with other teams' top line. That's going to be that's gonna be huge from this year. But um, you know, I'm a big believer in Fowler, so I, I think that they will you know grab one of those you know seventh or eighth seed uh, in the playoffs, maybe in the sixth seed. But um, uh, we'll see what happens in the playoffs. I, I just don't know if they have enough size.
2: One last thing about Southern California: you have two teams that certainly should be in the playoff hunt all year. What's this like? What's the status of hockey in, in Southern California right now? Is it as popular as it's ever been? Is there a dip? Where, where, where does it stand? And, you know, we have a really good friend. His name is Dave Damashek, and he's kind of a lot of his career right now is focuses on, focusing on football because he is uh, working for the NFL Network. But he's a guy who's been screaming since it started that what better place for the Winter Classic than on the beach somewhere in Southern California and have a Kings versus uh, Ducks game well, where, you know, where where where, do you, where does hockey stand right now in Southern California?
0: Um, it's it's fine. I think it depends on which market you're in. Uh, there's a lot of buzz right now around the Kings, just because there's, um, you know, the, the, they're expecting they, they might have the best rec, or best team that they've had in you know maybe their history on paper. So there's a lot of buzz around them. Um, with the Lakers being out with the lockout, I think that there's a void there that hockey has the potential to fill. Um, I, I think that around Anaheim, it's more of a, a cautious optimism. Um, uh, you know, they won a couple, a couple of years ago, so they're not going to be excited about a team that is hoping to make the playoffs, but, um, you know, it, it, it's good. It's, it's strong. Ask me that again in about six months. All um, right. and I think that there could be a, 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 fever pitch.
2: The sportscasters are here with Matt Wrights from view from my and, uh, Pro Hockey Talk, which is uh, kind of a spin off of Pro Football Talk on NBCSports.com. I want to kind of, for the last couple of minutes here with you, kind of talk about View from My Seats and its evolution. And you have a great line where you say, if you're not a diehard sports fan, go back to ESPN. Uh, what, what kind of, what's kind of the goal with View from My Seats? Like, what do you try to do each day and each week? And, you know, talk a little bit about its evolution from covering all sports to covering hockey, and tell us a little bit about what you try to accomplish exactly.
0: Uh, well, the way it started was it started uh, like four years ago. And what it, what it came down to is I just was looking for, um, you know, articles and, and sports news that was the way I talked about it with my friends, you know? we We would drop more f- bombs, but it was always whenever we read stuff in the paper we read it e s p n dot com or something. It was really never the way we saw it you know um but, and so that was kind of how it started, and it was all sports and I'm still a big college football guy, but with but with work, I'm not really following anything as much as as hockey, obviously um so that's kind of how it started um as I wrote more and more um, i I gained more contacts in the world of hockey and um, I enjoyed it. I liked writing about, you know, everything, and you know, people didn't necessarily care to care about, you know, Martin Hansel in Phoenix, but I liked writing about it. So I just kind of, at some point, it just sort of changed over to to hockey, and um, that that's kind of what we try to do is just try to think of things sometimes where where life and hockey kind of intersect. There's a lot of you know different metaphors and stuff. That sounds like an English professor. I hated English in school. Uh, <laughs> But um, you know, stuff like that where you can, you know, kind of look at the big picture. Um, but you can also look at other things. I mean, you know, recently we've talked about, like I said, the the fans in Atlanta and what they must be going through. That was that's a quintessential view from my seats article. Um, later on this week we're gonna talk about um, hockey and its kind of its place in North America. Um, with with Dan Weldon passing away. Uh, you saw IndyCar a lot on ESPN lately, and, um, you know, as much as hockey fans don't want to admit it, sometimes there's a lot more parallels with a free sport like that than with, you know, baseball or the NFL. Um, so, we'll, we'll talk about stuff like that, and, you know, we, we try to get away from the normal cliche um, topics. We try to get into stuff that, you know, fans will talk about. Guys, what you would talk about if you're in like three, section 316 of the game but you know, what you talk about with people around you? Now, stuff like that.
2: What about the the Twitter feed? Do you have a different goal with at view from my seats? Like, how does that complement or parallel the site?
0: Um. Well, it's it's the perfect place to you know talk to people. Where I love it when people will will hit me up and we try to throw some stuff out there. If I'm watching a game or whatever, um, you know, throw some stuff out that I see. Usually it's not serious. Sometimes it's making fun of Pierre Maguire's head. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because I've mean, he heard it a while ago, he looked like a turtle. You know what? Ever since then, I just look at him, he looks like a turtle. With his muscles. But, um, you know, that, that kind of hit stuff like that. You know, we'll talk about, you know, um, J.S. Shiger looking like, you know, he has the speed of a glacier. Um, uh, <laughs> Stuff like that. But we just try to have fun with it. I like talking about... What I love is getting other people's uh, perspectives and opinions. Um, you know, I'm not going to be arrogant and say that, you know, whatever I think is, you know, the end-all, be-all. Obviously, you know, I, I think it so I can throw it out there. But when somebody else... If I throw out an opinion and then I get, like, 10 people saying, oh, well, did you think of this? Did you think of this? I love that because sometimes I'll stop and be like, you know what? You know, I, I probably was wrong or I didn't think of it that way. So I love the Twitter... You can interact with different people. And um, also, the way it started was it was just a way to get um, the blog out to other people. Right. And, um, you know, now following other bloggers and stuff, I mean, I if, if I want to know what's going on with the St. Louis Blues, you know, you hit up three or four blogs and throw out a couple questions, and all of a sudden, you, everything you ever want to know about David Bacchus is at your fingertips, so.
2: Right, and if you want to know about the Buffalo Sabres, you follow at sports underscore casters, you know, and you get everything <laughs> you ever want to know about the Buffalo Sabres right there. That's right. That's yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. uh, last thing. It must be an exciting uh, thing for you to be a part of this pro hockey talk. Uh, I have the NBC sports app. I love uh, to be able to read about all the sports at once. And, you know, NBC sports is going to become a real important part of the national hockey league with versus being rebranded as the NBC sports network. We've long said that we think that that on this show, that's a great thing for hockey. Uh, w- where do you think Pro Hockey Talk fits in in the overall NBC Sports, you know, their overall view of what they're trying to accomplish with the app and the network and all those kinds of things?
0: Well, I think it's, I think it's huge, whether anybody wants it to be or not. Um, I don't know about you, but when I want information now about hockey or about any sport, to be honest with you, um, the first thing I do, I don't grab my remote control. The first thing I do is I grab my laptop um, and I look online. So um, just the fact that it's under the NBC umbrella is huge. Um, you know, this week in fact, um, the guys from the Kirtan blog up in Vancouver, um, they took over and they're going to be the, the managing editors over at Pro Hockey Talk. And the, you know they're going to have a presence on the NBC Sports Talk show uh, with Mike Milbury and Pierre McGuire and Keith Jones and all those guys. So um, there's going to be more. Um, I don't want to call it cross promotion, but it's definitely going to be a little more visible. Um, and you know, those guys, you know, when they're so far, you know, they're funny as heck. And um, you know, everybody works hard. They, you know, yesterday there was like thirty articles. So they, they want to make it a one-stop, you know, shopping place for sports. Where if you know you want to know anything, you can go to that one site and you get it. And you know, get a little bit of snark when 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 you do it, not that I've ever been known to be sarcastic, but, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it, it looks like it's going to be pretty good They're They're really making a push this year. And on um, the second of January, it, the official rebranding goes all the way through. So then it will be, um, the NBC sports network on versus. So, um, I think that's where it's going to take the next step with, you know, the the winter classic and everything. You're going to see another big push right around then.
2: All right. The sportscasters can be Couldn't thank you enough for joining us. It's Matt Rice. Again, you can find him. His website is viewfrommyseats.com, and it's the same on Twitter, at viewfrommyseats, plural. And you can also find his work on uh, Pro Hockey Talk, which is part of NBC Sports Talk, and they have a great iPhone, iPad, and Android app called the NBC Sports Talk app. I highly recommend that. Anything else you'd like to let our listeners know about you that we haven't covered.
0: Oh, no, that's probably more than anybody wants to know. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Matt, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Hopefully we can do it again sometime. Oh, last thing. Stanley Cup prediction? Yes, Stanley Cup prediction.
0: Um, I said at the beginning of the year it was going to be the Penguins and Canucks. Um, so it's too early in the year to change that right now. But Penguins. Penguins just because they've learned how to play defense and when Crosby and Malkin come back, that's a a stack team.
2: All right, you heard it here first, Matt writes, He's going Sabres and Canucks uh, in the finals. Uh, Thanks a lot. Thanks for joining us, Matt, and we love the pick. Good job. (laughs) No problem. All right, buddy. I'll talk to you soon. All right, thanks. Thanks, Matt. It's time for a new segment we've created called Five on Fantasy. With the first pick, Adrian Peterson, Drew Brees, Steven Jackson, Miles Austin, Lealet Ocho Cinco, TJ Pushman I once tricked my brother Greg into picking Roy Williams about nine rounds after he had actually been selected. <laughs> I don't care, I'm just trying to win me a fantasy football league.
3: Alrighty, the big story this week is the Carson Palmer. Uh, trade along with the smaller trade in Brandon Lloyd to the co- uh, Cowboys, the uh, Rams for a six round pick, I believe. And Ronnie Brown, Ronnie Brown. I <laughs> yeah. I didn't want to neglect Ronnie Brown uh, being traded from the Eagles to Detroit for Jerome Harrison. I think future consideration, something along those lines. So real quick, I just wanted to talk about the fantasy impacts that these guys would have. Um, from my perspective I think Carson Palmer helps slightly everybody except for Carl- Carson Palmer like I just I don't think he has a lot of value but I think he definitely helps the receivers there I don't think he can really hurt uh, McFadden's value because no. teams aren't playing honest against McFadden as it is so if anything maybe he opens it up a little bit more for McFadden so I kind of give all the Raiders a little bit of a bump on the offense b- except for Palmer, like I still don't think he's anything better than a bye week
2: fill-in. Yeah, I mean, I think look at McFadden is a superstar in the league now. Yeah, There's no doubt about that. He's like an Adrian Peterson type. It doesn't matter who his quarterback is. He's, right, he's going right. to be fine. And I think that it's going to help the it's going to help the wide receivers a bit because. Again, this is a guy who routinely throws for close to 4,000 yards, and I don't know that there's any reason to think he can't do that. Now, he's coming in cold to a new offense. He pro- He's not going to play this week, and then the next week they have a bye. So there's no reason to rush to the waiver wire or pick him up. I think it's a wait and see, and uh, maybe he has some value towards the end near the fantasy playoffs if there's more injuries. They have said he's not going to play, or that's just speculation? I, I, from what I've heard, he's probably not going to play this week because their bye is the week after. Okay, so you so, give him three weeks. You of know, practice, basically, then. you give him three weeks to get ready for the for the team.
3: Okay, uh, the next guy we said was Brandon
2: Lloyd. I think um, this is bigger. This is big. I think. I think um,
3: it gives it gives Bradford a legit target. I mean, before he was throwing to he, Gibson, Gibson, and Amendola, who's been hurt all year. I mean, just not a lot of real bunch NFL of number one talent. Yeah, I don't think it hurts Lloyd's value at all. If anything, it should. A change of scenery can't hurt him. He's, not, he's kind of wasting away in Denver this year, especially now. It couldn't have looked too good for him as a Brandon Lloyd owner with Tim Tebow coming into play there.
2: So I think he gets a slight boost. And a guy I haven't wanted to own anyway. Yeah, no, I haven't. You know, I just kind of felt like last year was a bit of a fluke. He never recaptured that magic with Wharton. I think the pressure of everything with Tebow was just too great this year. We knew they'd be kind of switching philosophies, going from McDaniel to John Fox, a coach. You know, that was going to be a hit. So he's a guy I've never been all that excited about. Um, I'm excited about this for Bradford. I think it's a chance for Bradford to finally have a legitimate target, and it'll be interesting to see how quickly Lloyd can pick up on the offenses. I don't know enough to know how close the... Rams offenses in terms of terminology and things like that to the Broncos offense. But if Floyd can, you know, I'm kind of thinking back to when wide receivers have been traded at this point of the season. And it seems to me like it usually doesn't make as big of an impact as you think.
3: No, and I I wouldn't expect this one to too much. I mean, as it is, uh, Bradford already has like a legit running back there. So now he has a legit target to throw to, maybe like we said maybe it gives him a slight a slight boost but still you're not i mean he's your number two or three quarterback at this point anyway um and the last guy ronnie brown just he just now becomes the best handcuff so he the javid best handcuff
2: is right so His best is going to miss at least a week it seems like
3: right i still don't know that's again worst case scenario maybe if you have bi-week troubles and you need a flex or something then maybe ronnie brown's a decent plug-in but there are still other guys there like maurice morris and uh Someone else I can't think of off the top of my head. But so, again, with all
2: these guys, I guess you kind of don't get too excited. Uh, one thing I want to mention this week if you have been patiently waiting with DeMarco Murray on your bench, as yeah. I have in a few leagues, you may re- be rewarded. You're going to at least, he's going to at least get a chance to have a start. Yep. Uh, Felix Jones is out with a high ankle sprain. That's almost the worst injury outside of an ACL that a running back can get. That kind of thing lingers. It never quite heals right. It seems like a player always rushes back from it. And DeMarco Murray's going to get his chance here. And as far as that goes, I know the old adage is a player
3: doesn't lose his job to injury. But I don't think Felix Jones has really done anything to call that his job. I think it's kind of his job by default. Um, he hasn't been great this year. I think he's
2: been a disappointment.
3: Yeah, for sure. And... uh Without Marion Barber, people expected a lot from him. So, I went when I heard that news. I went and put a waiver in in every one of my leagues for Demarco Murray. So, I I think there's a lot of upside. I think there's upside where he could be the starter there by the time Felix Jones is ready to come back. Just I just don't think Jones has done anything to to
2: put a stranglehold on that job. How did you do last week with your sets?
3: I. Don't remember off the top of my head. Do well, you have
2: here's the thing: uh, we both had the same guy at start and sit and right. running back, and we were excited to see who was right. And it was kind of a big giant bust because he didn't play. And that's Tim Hightower. I
3: think I had Hightower. I think we were talking earlier. I think I had Hightower and Best because in case Hightower didn't play, and Best kind of was a bust too. But it was again because of injury,
2: not necessarily performance. Right. Andrew Dalton was my start. I think that worked out great. If you needed a guy, which was kind of what I pointed out, and Dalton was the guy that you put in there, I think it worked out for you. Um, my wide receiver was Percy Harvin. That one didn't work out quite as well. Uh, if you were in a PPR, I think he probably had about nine points, maybe ten. Yeah. So I was a little disappointed with Percy Harvin.
3: Yeah, i I wish I could remember who mine were off the top of my head. I was maybe Matt Ryan.
2: Well, you had no. You had uh, Matt Schaub as your quarterback.
3: Matt Schaub. What did he do? Schaub had he had two hundred and twenty yards and a TD. So in his past good set, t- that's a decent set.
2: And then your running back was Hightower. Right, Hightower and Best. We said. And then your receiver was. Oh, it was uh,
3: Pierre Garcon. That's right.
2: Who did score?
3: He did score again. So I don't know. Maybe. Do you believe in Pierre Garçon, I guess would be the question. He now has
2: 472 yards receiving. I have to because, you know what, all I've always said is these garbage quarterbacks are going to throw to somebody, and it seems like Painter is most comfortable throwing to Garçon. Well, he didn't score, according to ESPN. He had oh, eight, eight catches one? for 52
3: yards, so that's oh, okay. not a bad day in a PPR league. But, okay. All right, so, yeah, I must have just I wouldn't say that was a great sit. In. It wasn't a great start Stark. either. Dallas Clark did score. That was one of them, so maybe that's okay. who we're thinking of. And maybe the other one was Delone Carter or somebody. Um, My sits this week, I'm going to have to come back to quarterback because my sit was Carson Palmer. I guess this holds true, though. I want to wait and see him for a week first. Chances are, like I said, he's only a bi-week fill-in anyway, but don't let name, recognition, draft status, any of that stuff fool you. Yeah, don't rush to get Kevin. Don't rush to get him into your lineup. No. Um, I guess Matt Ryan maybe would be a sit this week. He definitely disappointment he's been a disappointment all year so that's not the sexiest sit as far as mind-blowing or anything like that um i want to say maybe somebody like tim tebow but he plays the Dolphins, so i could see him rushing for 60 yards in that game in a low scoring game where he just doesn't have to make a lot of mistakes so yeah i'll go with matt ryan this week
2: All right, my start this week is Josh Freeman. Josh Freeman's a guy that we've kind of been waiting all season for. He certainly had his best game of the season against the Saints this week, and he also happens to be playing the Bears this week, who are 25th against the pass this season. Wow. So it's another opportunity for Josh Freeman to have a good week and to build off of the great week he had against the Saints. I actually I think I dropped Josh Freeman
3: in the league. Believe it or not, I think it was to pick up Big Ben. I think someone went nuts or either had bye week troubles with injuries or something like that to Ben, but still, uh, yeah, he's a guy that would disappoint me at the beginning of the year. My running back sit this week, and this is almost like a season long sit because I think anyone that owns him is about where I am with him, but uh, Peyton Hillis, he is fast approaching droppable territory. Yeah,
2: he's been bad.
3: I know. It's tough to come by running backs this year, especially with how pass-heavy the league has been, but Peyton Hillis has been an enormous disappointment. He's losing more and more carries every week to Montario Hardesty. I'm surprised looking here that he's even the leading runner on a team still, but he's the leading rusher with 211 yards. Ooh. So he's averaging about 40 yards a game and about half a touchdown a game. So It'd be one thing if he had 40, 40 yards a game and, but was scoring a touchdown or two every game. He's not. So I don't even know that he'd really be their goal line guy technically anymore.
2: All right, my start at running back is someone we mentioned a sec ago, and that's DeMarco Murray. Not only is he going to get his first NFL start, but he's also going to play St. Louis' his 32 against yeah. the run. You can't ask for much more than that. So if DeMarco Murray is going to be a guy who can take this job from Felix Jones, he's going to do it this week when he plays the 32-ranked rushing defense in the St. Louis Rams.
3: The other thing I was going to say about that is uh, (laughs) Cleveland does play the Seahawks. So, I mean, if there was ever a week, maybe this is Hillis' last chance on your lineup because, again, that game should be relatively low scoring, a game that would benefit a running back. But uh, he's just been awful. But uh, my wide receiver sit is Brandon Lloyd. Again, I'm not sure he's going to play. They do play Dallas, too. So even if he does, I don't like any of the St. Louis receivers this week against Dallas. I think that could be a big, ugly blowout. Um, if he doesn't, I'll have to come back. I'll, I'll look at another sit. Come All right.
2: My start, or, yeah, my start this week is Brandon Marshall. Uh, he's a guy that I know I have him on a team where he's either my third or fourth guy. He had his best week this season uh, just, just last night week, yeah. and it was against Revis. Yeah. Uh, and Cromartie between the two of them, both of them were on him all night and he had 16 points in uh, the league that I was looking at. And uh, it was his best week so far this season. And this week they played the Broncos who are 22nd against the past. So, the Jets were actually fifth against the pass, and he had 16 points, and he gets a much better matchup this week against the Broncos, who are 22nd. So I think Brandon Marshall is a guy that you definitely want to make sure you're starting this week.
3: All right, if Brandon Lloyd doesn't play, I will go with Vincent Jackson as my sit. Again, not a guy you're actually going to sit, but I just just temper your expectations. He is going to play Revis, and as you said, Revis got kind of beat up this week a little bit by Marshall. The Jets in general just didn't look that good, even in a win. It was just a boring, dreadful game. Yeah, probably just
2: awful to even play. So
3: I think Rivas bounced back slightly against Vincent Jackson this week.
2: All right, last thing on five on fantasy today is just a quick update of the sportscaster's fantasy football league with the listeners. Don defeated me Finally. this week. Oh, I got it, it was you. That's right. Yeah, one thirty one to one twenty one. Uh, He pulled away a little bit because he had one last guy last night. A kicker, yeah. (laughs) Nick Folk had had six points. But it it was really close all day. It was one of those ones that would have been very frustrating to uh, be following on, um, like, live scoring all day.
3: Yeah, I was following. I didn't turn that game on because I knew it would be a nightmare. Uh, But I checked on it at about the third quarter and in one league, I needed Santonio Holmes to get less than 10 points, and in another one, I needed Sean Green to have, like, less than 10 points. Well, I saw that Holmes touchdown, so I got pissed and threw my phone. And, and then I woke up the next day and realized I beat the other guy by, like, one point because Sean Green didn't get another yard or whatever. So Santonio Holmes burned me in one league, but it probably in another way saved me in the other league.
2: In our specific matchup, the of Shones injury hurt me because uh, he went out early and only ended up with five points. If he plays that game and gets, say, 12 points, I win. Right. You know, so that was, a, that was a killer. But on the other hand, you had Peyton Hillis, who also left the game injured. So In the league I'm talking about that
3: I lost with the San Antonio Holmes play, um, I would have won had I played Aaron Hernandez and I th- over Jermichael Finley, and I thought about it, and I'm like, I don't want to get too cute. And sure enough, Hernandez had the better day. And the funny thing about that league is I'm 1 in 5 in that stupid league and I'm struggling and struggling and struggling and pissed and like every time I look at it it's just like oh this is hopeless. I'm one game out of a playoff spot. Yeah. That's a 10 team league that lets 7 teams make the playoffs and there's like 5 2 and 4 teams right now and I'm 1 in 5. So that's why you never give up in fantasy football. Make a move here or there. I know I'm getting DeMarco
2: Murray in that league because I hold the highest waiver priority. So and uh, props to Jared from the Listener League. He is 6 and 0. The Pittsburgh feelers? Pittsburgh feelers. Jesus, 6-0. that team will not lose. They will not lose. Does he have uh, Fred Jackson? His team is basically Romo, Jones Drew, McCoy, Welker, Darius Moore, Welker, Witten, That's Stewart. Big one. He has Bradshaw. Leagues. Uh,
3: we we talked about this at the beginning of the year, but leagues are one in the sixth, seventh round. This stuff could be like a that. tough
2: league for him. He's got a lot of buys. He's got McCoy, Welker, Bradshaw, and Fitzpatrick on by.
3: Wow, that's a lot. But, yeah, the leagues are – I I find that fantasy leagues aren't one in the first few rounds. It's the sixth, seventh rounds. And this year, guys, that, teams that have Welker and teams that have guys like Fred Jackson are the teams that are 6-0 and oh and the like.
2: All right, that's it for Five on Fantasy today. We're going to take a break. We're going to come right back with Jesse Goem from the fanmanifesto.com. We'll be right back with Jesse. Our next guest is from Westchester, New York, and has studied at Vanderbilt University. He is the founder of a sports website called The Fan Manifesto. Fan Man strives to be a site for the educated sports fan and covers the NFL, Major League Baseball, the NBA, and all of the rest. The website has a popular mailbag feature and has a huge presence on Twitter. A warm sportscasters welcome to one of the the main writer there at Fan Manifesto, Jesse Gollum. How are you doing today, Jesse?
1: I'm good. How are you guys?
2: We're doing very good. Excited to have you on. You know, just a little backstory for everyone listening. Uh, the sportscasters, we always like to try to find cool stuff on the internet that's a little bit different than just the regular ESPN.com kind of a thing. And I stumbled across the Fan Manifesto and uh, was really excited just to kind of surf around there and read some of the stories uh, and get the different perspective. Why don't we just kind of start off by talking a little bit about the idea behind the Fan Manifesto and what some of the goals are and what exactly you guys are trying to accomplish that makes this site different than just the average, everyday sports website?
1: Well, right. We we don't try to be a sports media site, but we're more of a response to sports media in the sense that um, you're sports fan with the whole 24-hour news cycle when you're watching ESPN, when you're going on ESPN.com, on Fox Sports and all that stuff, you know... Those guys, they're they're great for what they do. You know, it's a good destination. I use ESPN myself, but they really kind of perpetuate stories and storylines that don't really deserve it. There's a lot of sensationalism. There's a lot of um, reporting just for the sake of reporting instead of telling the story that makes sense. And and um, you go on ESPNNewYork.com. I'm from New York. I, I love using that site. But every once in a while, you'll see a column that's written. And it looks like it's written just for the sake of garnering page views. And what we want to do here is we want to just write from a fan's perspective to provide a rational fan's perspective on what's going on in the sports world. And I don't think that's something that's really available in today's media. I mean, you have Bleacher Report, but obviously that has its problems. 90% of what's on there is pretty terrible, to be honest. There's some good stuff, and you can find it, but we kind of want to distill the idea of Bleacher Report, the fan's perspective, but make sure you get. The good stuff.
2: What when the fan manifesto works the best? What what's happening? The fan manifesto works
1: best when you're getting uh, a fan's perspective on a topic on a topical issue, but not we don't do game recaps. We don't do straight analysis. We like to have the rational report on what's going on. For example, a lot of the time we'll have a columnist. I do this a lot myself. Respond to some sort of misconception that the media is driving. For example, when the Yankees uh, got eliminated from the playoffs and with a couple weeks back, I wrote something about how you know everybody was going after A. Rod because that was the easy thing to do. He's the thirty million dollar guy who struck out to make the last out. But in reality, the whole team didn't hit. You know, Nick Swisher's bat, he was one for twenty one. I think it was with runners in scoring position in his Yankees postseason career. There's a lot of blame to go around. In. Just those sorts of things, what what people are missing. And maybe that's that's obvious, but if you watch ESPN and if you go on Fox Sports and those things, it doesn't seem too obvious because everybody seems to be talking about the opposite.
2: Today it seems like the biggest story in sports um, is this trade that the Cincinnati Bengals finally made letting Uh. Carson Palmer out and uh, trading him to the Raiders for basically a king's ransom. What, what, what is it about that story that, that you think, uh, how would the Fan Manifesto cover that? What's, what's the story within the story that you find most interesting revolving around the Carson Palmer trade?
1: I'm glad you asked that because I think this is probably the best day in Bengals franchise history or close to it. And uh, that's a testament as much to how, you know, the ineptitude of the Bengals franchise as it is of current Raiders leadership I mean, this move reeks of Al Davis, and you know, at first I, I saw it. You know, I woke up late today and I saw it come across, and I didn't know what they had gotten for him yet. And then I heard two first-round picks seemed, you know, really out there, and I figured the move would be the move would be completely blasted by everybody, and rightfully so. Some blasted it, but I mean, I was watching, pardon the interruption, today, for example, and Mike Wilbon's talking about how. You know, the the Bengals had all the leverage here because the Raiders waited until Jason Campbell got hurt to make this deal. And they should have made it before Jason Campbell got hurt. And, yeah, that's probably true. But the Bengals didn't have any leverage here. The Bengals, if they didn't trade him by today, would have gotten nothing for Carson Palmer. He would have sat on their books. They would have had to eat his contract. And he, they would have been paying him however much he has left to forget, what is it, $40 million to sit at home. And instead, they end up with a first round pick and, at the very least, a second round pick. And it is a great day and a rare great day to be a Bengals fan.
2: Another big story today is that the World Series starts tomorrow. And, you know, between the two of us, I'm a pretty huge baseball fan. I'm going to watch the World Series no matter what. My partner, Don, he's a little bit more of a fringe baseball fan. You know, the, there needs to be something to draw him to the World Series. What are some of the things that interest you about this, this week's World Series? Or maybe what are some things that don't interest you about it?
1: Yeah, it's interesting because uh, we've had this a couple times or at least – uh, half a World Series over the last few years has been a small market team, but right now, I don't know if we—I call the you know the Arlington area or St. Louis small market, but it's certainly not Boston or New York or Philly. And I guarantee you, if you gave Bud Sealy a vile of he'd always tell you he'd rather have one, at least one of those teams in the series. Obviously, we don't have that this year. And I, I wrote about this a couple weeks back on the site. Now, i am this—I'm a, a huge diehard baseball fan, but you know, once the Yankees are out of the playoffs, as a Yankee fan, I don't, I don't hide the fact that I'm a New York sports fan. Um, I tend to lose interest, and I haven't as much this year just because we seem to be in the midst of one of the greatest all-around baseball seasons ever between the wild-card race and all that. But to be honest, I don't know how much I'm going to watch this World Series. I'll, I'll definitely follow it. I'll definitely keep up with it. But the Cardinals... I'd, it's not a particularly exciting team. You know, they they've they, they were here a few years ago. There's a general apathy for whatever reason that stems from the Cardinals. I don't know why. I'm not really sure about that. Uh, but what I'm going to be watching for is Texas, because this is a team, obviously, that uh, Nolan Ryan's turned around with the uh, young pit pick uh, up to with the farm system and looking for their first World Series, the first Senators team to win a World Series. I guess not actually the Twins won 2 in the 90s, but... I'll be rooting for the Rangers, but I don't know how much I'll be watching.
2: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned what a great baseball season it's been. We had that one incredible night where, you know, uh, the Red Sox were finishing off their collapse. The Braves were finishing off their collapse. the The Rays were hitting these home runs and coming back from eight runs. We had that wonderful night, and we had a pretty good division series. Do you think that the end of it is just kind of seeming a little bit anticlimactic based on how great things have been?
1: Well, I don't know if we can make that judgment until we actually see what happens, but I do know that I think what, if you were writing the script and if the MLB was writing the script, what they would want is probably either the Yankees or the Phillies or Boston going up against each other or going up against one small market team. To so at least have that David and Goliath story, and you have a pretty watered down Goliath story here with the Rangers. Sure, they haven't won a World Series. And what the Cardinals won uh, seven or eight, nine, I guess. But, you know, the car the Rangers are really the favorites I would think here. They're a better baseball team doesn't mean they'll win. We've seen that plenty of times. But this could still be a great World Series. I don't necessarily doubt that. It's just not an eye catcher for sure. Uh,
2: you mentioned that you're a fan of ESPN New York and earlier in the summer there something that we do here as the sportscasters is we like to read books with our listeners. And one of the books that we picked out to read earlier in the summer was *The Captain*. And I know that you're a big Yankees fan, a fan of, I assume, Derek Jeter. And I don't know if you got a chance to read *The Captain* or not. It probably doesn't matter if you did, but there was basically two books in it. There was the story of Derek Jeter, and then there was this long, drawn-out half of the book that was basically about the Jeter and A-Rod relationship. Does that frustrate you? well yeah, does that frustrate you as a Yankee fan that you know, like you kind of alluded to it earlier, like everything always has to come back to well, I don't know, Aaron and Jeter don't get along or something like this. It seems so yeah. manufactured, seems so made up. What was your take on the captain whether you read it or not, just the, kind of the book in general and kind of the angle that it took?
1: Well, I I haven't read the book itself. I read the excerpts they released and I'm actually a big fan of Ian O'Connor, who wrote the book I believe, right? Yes, yeah, Ian O'Connor. And he's I think the best ESPN New York has right now. And when I say I go to ESPN New York a lot, I do, but it frustrates me because it's kind of it's kind of what I'm trying to go against with the Fan Manifesto in the sense that they have a good column here or there. And Ian O'Connor is usually very good. He's one of my favorite guys writing today actually. But, you know, Wally Matthews, I don't know if you know Wally Matthews, I'm not a big Wally Matthews guy. And he'll he'll write, he wrote something last year about how the Yankees should have traded A-Rod for relief and e- eaten his contract. And you just see these things from time to time. But the whole perception of A-Rod is one of these things that is hard to describe, but is what we're trying to describe with our site in the sense that the guy deserves a lot of flack. He gets a $30, million con- $30 billion a year contract, and that opens you up to any sort of criticism you want. But uh, you'd hope the criticism is fair. And when the guy has, has only played 100 games this year, and he's clearly getting into the playoffs hurt, and he basically carried the team on his back to a World Series two years ago, and now all of a sudden he's not clutch again, just because over the course of however many at-bats, 15, 16 at-bats, with a bad hip and a bad shoulder, he doesn't hit, you know, now everybody's killing A-Rod again, and that's not fair. And we'll be happy to lampoon people when we think they deserve it, and we've done it plenty of times. But you just have to sit back, and you can't react to the moment. You can't react, excuse me, in the moment, and uh, just try to put your biases to the side, put what the rest of the media is saying to the side, and think for yourself, and that's what we try to do.
2: The Sportscasters are here with uh, Jesse Golem from thefanmanifesto.com. And you can also follow them on Twitter. They're at FanMan, and uh, they have a really great uh, Twitter feed. Definitely something I recommend following. Uh, one last thing I wanted to t- touch on with you is uh, New York football this year. Uh, the Giants and the Jets, both interesting teams. Um, pretty interesting to see that it seemed like Eli Manning was having the struggle of struggles this this preseason and maybe the first week or two of the season but he seems to really have turned it around and I thought he might have played one of his best games as a pro this weekend against the Bills what are your thoughts about the two New York teams as we got to see the Jets on Monday Night Football this week and uh, the Giants
1: yeah I mean again I make no bones about it I'm a diehard Giants fan but I'll tell you something. You can't really appreciate what Eli's doing this season unless you've watched him from week to week and and during games. And having watched him since he's drafted, I guess it's his eighth year now. He looks like oh, like he's made some sort of massive step this season. I mean, he's another guy who always got a bit of an unfair rep because of because of his brother, you know. And you know, everybody's always comparing him to Peyton. And obviously, if he didn't have that last name, they wouldn't be. But He's always been solid, but even when he was solid, he never made those throws or those plays that made you say, oh, wow, that was impressive. You know, made you believe in him. And this year, you know, he's manipulated the pocket. He drops back. He sees the rush. He steps up. He's made some gorgeous back-shoulder throws. He made a throw this week to uh, Mario Manningham in the end zone, dropped it over his shoulder in double coverage, and he just dropped it, and that disappears from the stat sheet, but it was maybe the nicest throw I've ever seen Eli make in eight years of football. Having said that, as a Giants fan, we have to be have some perspective here. I'm not too confident in my team this year. and I, I wrote about this this week that I'm satisfied that they're a good team, but they're definitely not a great team. They, Coughlin deserves credit, and he's not getting much for what he's done with the injury-ravaged roster with, um, with a team that probably wasn't going to be that great in the first place, ravaged offensive line you know, uh, secondary that looked like it's going to be good, but half of it's gone down to injuries. And they've turned their 4-2. They've got a second-half schedule that looked hellish at first, but now that the Eagles and the Cowboys and the Saints are struggling, it might be manageable. And they they should be able to sneak into the playoffs now. We'll see what we can do there. But uh, the Jets, on the other hand, last night they looked – they might have won – but they that offense is one of the worst offenses I've seen on a contending team in It's a three-and-out
2: machine, huh? I've never right. seen a team go three-and-out as much as the Jets do.
1: It's really amazing. And, you know, everybody piles on Schottenheimer, and sometimes uh, rightfully so. But it's time to start evaluating what they have there with Sanchez. And you can't, you know, of course you don't pull the plug yet or even think about it. But... You know, it was always suspected He was, at some point, you know, he made some plays here at the end of games. He made some plays there. But he hadn't even put he hadn't put together that many single great games, let alone a full season. And Granted, this is only his third season. But he just doesn't look like he knows what he's doing out there half the time. He's running around, you know, and he'll make a play. But he holds on the ball. It's not that accurate. He doesn't seem to have that great a handle on the offense. And, you know, the offensive line hasn't helped him out that much. The running game's been a little bit of a disappointment, but you just like to see him give Jets fans a little more confidence. And, uh, you know, I'm talking to my uh, my Jets fan friends, and these are guys who last year and the year before loved the hell out of Rex and loved the hell out of Sanchez, and there's some people saying if they don't make the playoffs this year, Rex needs to go, Whew. and that's not right.
2: That's insane. Because, I
1: mean, it's amazing how fast people can turn, <laughs> and that's, again, one of the things we try to avoid that – a couple losses, and all of a sudden, the savior is the GOAT. But in, on PPI today, they made a good point. And, you know, ESPN does well sometimes. But they made a good point in that the Jets have tended to struggle at the beginning of seasons, and they put it together. We'll see what they can do in December and maybe in January. AFC is wide open this year.
2: That is that. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. There's going to be a lot of teams fighting for... For, uh, those playoff spots. What's kind of the future of the Fan Manifesto? What what goals do you have for the site and where do you see it evolving?
1: Um, well, we have a couple things going on. And one thing I'm always doing is I'm always looking for new writers. Uh, we have a team of about 30 writers on staff right now. Um, they they contribute. Most of them contribute regularly. Some of them contribute from time to time. We let them do what they like because we don't want them to write anything they don't believe in. And I think that when you give a writer a deadline, and if he has to write something, he might write something he doesn't believe in. And that's part of the problem with the media today, but sort of unavoidable. But we're adding this week or next, we're going to add some video content to the website. Uh, in January, we're going to look to add, to add uh, Fan Man Radio and sort of podcast, kind of what you guys have going on over here. And obviously, otherwise, we're, we're trying to build content, build a readership. We've done a great job at that so far, and we're just trying to move forward in that respect.
2: The Sportscaster is lucky enough to be joined by Jesse from The Fan Manifesto. Again, it's thefanmanifesto.com. You can find them on Twitter. They are at FanMan. Uh, we're looking forward to possibly, as he said, expanding to a podcast in January. Some other things. Uh, writing wise, is there any stories that you're working on that you're getting ready? Is there anything, a story that you're following on sports that you think could be a column here in the next couple of weeks?
1: Uh, I haven't. I don't have anything personally in the can. But as I said, we have. It's not just me over here. It used to be just me, but now it's a bunch of other guys. We have thirty. Uh, Thirty people on our team, and we have a bunch of cool stuff this week actually coming and already here. We have um, one of our writers, Daniel Bogard, wrote something pretty interesting on the whole "suck for luck" sweepstakes. ESPN wrote about it a few weeks back, but he's you know he there's a big possibility here, and I agree with him that these teams that are sucking for luck or or they're accused of sucking for luck, the Dolphins, the Broncos, are going to get bitten for it. You know, as much as a sure thing as this guy seems, there has never been a sure thing in the nFL draft and if if this guy doesn't pan out or if they don't get him after sucking for luck they're gonna they're gonna be in trouble. Uh, we have a couple more things we um we have uh Christopher Corelli, who's written about some broader baseball issues, you know the opt out clause the the um notion of team chemistry in baseball clubhouses that seems in his opinion. Is completely fallacious. Uh, we had one guy talk about the Jets and that Rex Ryan. Now that they're losing, and now that they've never really done anything in the playoffs, it's officially time for him to shut his mouth. Um, <laughs> and uh, or put a just foot just in bunch of other stories. We try to take the stories that are going on in the world and take and put a, a different angle or spin on them than the rest of the media is. And there's so much competition and so much oversaturation in the media today that that's a necessary thing if you want to compete with the big boys. And not that we. I think we can compete with the big boys, but we feel like we can fill a niche or a voice in sports media
2: all right well we give it the uh, sportscaster stamp of approval again it's www.thefanmanifesto.com you can find him on Twitter at fanman thanks a lot for joining us Jesse we really appreciate it thanks guys anytime we'll talk to you soon All right, we got to thank Jesse Gollum from thefanmanifesto.com, and I have to apologize to Jesse and his family. I've probably said his last name thirty or forty different ways on the show today, <laughs> yeah. so sorry about that, Jesse. Also, want to thank our other guests, Pablo Astore and Matt Wrights. Pablo, of course, from Sports Illustrated, SportsIllustrated.com, and Matt from ViewFromMySeats.com. Uh, a couple things to mention: don't forget to check us out on Facebook. We're at facebookcom Sportscasters. Uh, you can find us on Twitter. We are at sports underscore casters or at like sports or at diversity23. You can also email us anytime. We are the sportscasters at gmail.com. Keep that email close. We're going to be starting our 12 Days of Christmas promotion soon, and we got some great prizes collected for that. Also, you can check out our blog. It's thesportscasters.blogspot.com and our website, which is www.sports-casters.com. I also wanted to mention an app. If you have an iPad, there's a really cool app called uh, Tweed, T-W-E-E-D, and basically its main function is to take your timeline and pull out all the tweets that have articles in them, and then you can read the articles right in The app itself, and it's a really cool iPad app, and the developer of it is going to be helping us kind of put a little something together that is going to be available on Newsstand, which is a new feature of iOS 5.0. So I wanted to mention Tweet. Make sure you download that. Uh, On to pick four, the last piece of business for today. Don and I both went two and two last week. We both won the game of the week, which was the Cardinals over the Brewers last Wednesday. Uh, the Cardinals won that game four to three. It was four to nothing before it started, seemingly. And the Brewers chipped away, chipped away, but didn't quite get it. My other win was LSU minus fifteen and a half over Tennessee. They easily won that game thirty-eight to seven. Don's other win was another easy one. He had the Bears minus three. The Bears crushed the Vikings thirty-nine to ten. Our two losses. Uh, I had the Sabers over the Hurricanes. I'm still shocked. I lost that game. Um, I'm shocked the way it happened even more. You know what's strange, uh, if you think back to last year, the Sabres have a l-
3: had a lot of trouble at home for some reason. Especially
2: early in the season. They're
3: basically 3-0 and if you count the two neutral site games as away games. They're 3-0 and on the road this year and 0-1 at home. So hopefully they don't have the struggles they did last year.
2: And they do have three more road games before they come back home. So if they can keep doing this on the road, yeah. they go off to a nice start. Uh, my other loss was I had the Browns straight up over the Raiders. And that didn't work out quite. They gave it a run there. At it's the close, end, yeah. but the Raiders won twenty four seventeen. Don's two losses. He had the Saints minus five over the Bucks. Saints lost the game outright twenty six twenty. And I'll tell you what, Drew Brees has got to be having nightmares this week. He had Robert Meacham wide open in the end zone when he threw that pick late in the game. Now I don't have the.
3: Uh I don't have the ticket. I have just the red zone. But, like, they would show some of Breeze's picks. Does he throw just really bad picks sometimes? Sometimes, yeah. yeah it, sometimes he tries to slinger. do too much. Yeah, just a gunslinger, yeah.
2: I don't even know if it's that. I think just sometimes he tries to do too much. Yeah, because
3: some of them, they showed that game And especially
2: good. in games where he doesn't get any running support. Yeah, I looked at the numbers. And they the, were terrible. The run, they And, you know, that, that interception, it looks really bad. But it's also fourth down there. Oh, okay. You know, so... You can't, you're not going to get sacked. Right, you're not right. going to throw it away. Right. The mistake he made on the play is that he didn't see Meacham on the other side of the end zone. Ah. He rolled out right on the play. Meacham was wide open on the left. Breeze never saw him. Everything that was on the right where he rolled out was covered, but you might as well throw it.
3: From a fantasy perspective, Colston looks like the man again there, other, and, other than Graham. Yeah, Colston will be fine.
2: Uh, and Don's other loss was he had the Panthers minus four of the Falcons. Falcons won that one. Handily by the end.
3: 31 Yeah. All right, this week's Game of the Week is, by default, <laughs> as we talked about how it's not probably the sexiest matchup on paper, but the World Series Game 1, that starts tomorrow night. That's Wednesday at 8.05 on Fox. I'm going to take the Cardinals. I took them last week. I'm going to take them to keep rolling. They might not necessarily be the more talented team, but they just seem like a team that uh, is going in the right direction. They're, they're rolling.
2: Prince Fielder hit a home run way back in July at the All-Star game to give the National League home field advantage in the World Series. Ah, interesting. And there's few teams that have the home field advantage that the St. Louis Cardinals do yeah. in Major League Baseball. And uh, because of that, I'm going to pick the Cardinals to win game one. And they're going to have their ace on the mound, Chris Carpenter. Carpenter yep. And he's tough to beat. So I'm going to take the, Car- uh, the Cardinals. Uh, to win game one as well.
3: My host choice this week, Houston at Tennessee. Uh, That's a Sunday 1 o'clock game at CBS. Uh, Tennessee is laying three points. I'm going to take Tennessee minus the three points. I like teams coming off buys. Um, I don't know what to think of Houston yet. Again, they're a 3-2 or 3-3 team at this point, and some weeks they're world beaters it looks like, and other weeks they struggle to get past – teams that they should walk all over and I think Tennessee might be better than people thought at the beginning of the year so I'm going to take Tennessee minus three
2: I am going to stick with LSU here I hope I don't I'm not going to the well one too many times but I you know they've covered back-to-back 30 point spreads in the SEC with one of the games being at home they play Auburn this week who is a ranked team but not that great. LSU is giving up 22 and a half. I'm going to lay 22 and a half. And interestingly, the AccuScore has them winning the game 60% of the time, giving the 22%. Wow! So, or the 22 points. So, I'm going to take LSU that game Saturday at 3:30 on CBS. I'm going to stick with LSU minus 22 and a half.
3: My worldwide leader pick is the Monday night football game. Uh, Again, probably not the matchup they hoped for at the beginning of the year, as was last weekend's. Baltimore at Jacksonville. Baltimore is giving eight points, and I'm going to take Baltimore even on the road in a primetime game. But again, coming off a bye week, they've had two weeks to plan for lowly Jacksonville and their rookie quarterback and Maurice Jones-Drew. So Jones-Drew's actually had a pretty quietly nice year, but... He's about all they got going for him there. So I'm going to take Baltimore minus the 8.
2: I'm going to take the Saints minus 14 over the Colts. It's, again, not a great night game, but no. uh, I'm sure they were thinking Manning yeah, versus would have been Breeze great. there with Manning coming back to his hometown in New Orleans. Instead, it's Breeze versus Painter. I've been a little surprised at the reaction uh, to the Saints' loss. I think part of it might be because of how badly tampa bay lost on the road to san francisco the year before Yeah, i
3: can't think of the guests but one of them even referred to it as how the saints were struggling
2: yeah they are i, I don't know that they, they've only lost on the road to green bay and tampa bay before the season started i probably would have said yeah we'll probably split with tampa bay
3: yeah teams lose division games uh
2: like that, yeah and you know the Saints had the ball at the five-yard five line with four minutes left, a chance to take the lead, and it just didn't work out. Well, when you lose, you want to come back, and the next week it's nice to have the Colts yeah. waiting for you at home on a Sunday night. The Dome should be rocking. So I'll lay the two touchdowns, and I'll pick the Saints. Now, though. is
3: that the division the Saints are playing this year, or is that one of their random games? Or not random. No, that's but like, the
2: division because it's AFC-NFC. Okay, they are playing. Okay. So they're playing the AFC South. They've already beaten Jacksonville and Houston. Okay, right, because if it was. Right. So they, they had to play someone game else. in Tennessee left.
3: Okay. Uh, my bold prediction this week, Detroit at or Atlanta at Detroit. Detroit's laying four points. And I've been betting against Atlanta seemingly all year. So I'm going to triple that and take Detroit minus 12. That's Sunday at 1 o'clock on Fox. Whew.
2: That's a bold prediction, buddy.
3: I don't have a lot of respect for Atlanta. I, Detroit coming off a loss, I, I think they come out fired up.
2: I said that the new way that I'm going to approach this is I'm going to take road team or underdogs that I think can win the game outright. Forget the points. This one, it's bold for sure. But I'm going to take the Cardinals to beat the Steelers at home. Uh, There's been something Seemingly off a little bit about the Steelers. Oh, yeah, for sure. They didn't play as well as you'd expect them to play at home against Jacksonville. They let Jacksonville hang in there all day. Uh, The Cardinals sat home and watched last week. And it's nice to be able to uh, be at home on your bye and then have a home game. And Seattle, or excuse me, uh, the Steelers are going to have to travel all the way across the country. An East Coast team playing a West Coast game. And I'm going to take the Cardinals straight up to beat the Steelers this week as my bold prediction. We'll see how that works out. I'm, <laughs> I'm one for one so far. i doing it that way. All right. I want to thank our guests one last time, uh, Pablo S. Torrey, Matt Wrights, and Jesse Golem. I also want to remind you to check out their websites, SI.com, viewfrommyseats.com, and thefanmanifesto.com. And uh, I also want to encourage you to check out our website, www.sports-casters.com and also would like to remind you to follow us on Twitter at sports underscore casters Don Q the hip we'll be back next week goodbye right.